Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the program. Top of the morning to you. Oh, what a show. Man, I'm telling you, we spent the entire morning watching Baltimore Aftermath. It's crazy what's going on in Baltimore, Maryland today. Uh, Our prayers go out to all of the great residents there, the citizens there that are trying to hold their city together. (sighs) Folks, we're going to talk about it. Uh, A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking with an expert who's going to help us understand maybe what's going on a little bit in Baltimore, uh, just also with just the young men of the country. And uh, we need to pay more attention to what's going on with the young men. Also, obviously, you know, we've got to understand and figure out uh, what the tension, the, the, the very real tension, the issues that are going on between uh, the black community, the police, and um, we can judge it all you want. But the reality is something's just not right. And we got to figure it out. So we'll be talking I mean, I'm sure that's the news. If you if you watch the news, there's bricks, cars being lit on fire, fire hoses being cut, city they're burning their their own home down. And interesting, interesting thing, another uh, crazy story that I'm, I'm hearing um, coming out of Baltimore: the Bloods, the Crips, these gangs are actually now working with pastors to protect their own communities. In fact, there was a CNN reporter that had a Crip gang member come up to him and basically protect him while he was filming and doing an interview. Wow. And then um, just he kind of stood to the side just, of him. He just said, look, I'll just we'll watch. Over, stay with us and we'll watch over you. Now, nationally. Yeah. In the midst of all the protests and rioting, Baltimore Police Department said in a statement that they had received a credible threat that the Black Gorilla family, which is one gang. Another gang, the yeah. The Bloods and Crips and other gangs plan to target police officers. Police department across the country are being extra cautious in the wake of the announcement. Isn't that, so, so nationally, that's going on. Yeah. Locally, the, the, this pastor, I'm trying to find his name, who's organizing a bunch of other ministers to basically – say no we we want we want to have our voices heard but you don't want your voices heard by burning down your town so he's trying to take on the youth and they believe a lot of this is just young high school kids that are creating a lot of the mayhem and he's trying to organize not just the gangs but uh the priests the ministers the pastors in fact today they uh they the kids aren't going to be going to school which this pastor's like what are we doing yeah now the kids now, need to be in school now now they have nowhere to go <laughs> it's interesting so he's actually inviting them all to come to his church and where he's going to teach them about peaceful uh you know kind of a peaceful resistance a a peaceful um what would you call it? A peaceful revolt is really what he's right. saying. And he's he also is going to then take these kids, teach them about it, show them the videos of Martin Luther King, but then walk them around and have them start cleaning up the community. I mean, ah, uh, it's the that's what you need. That you need leaders like that. And it seems like a lot of the leadership was was kind of not there yesterday. So, Mayor of uh, Baltimore, 
Yeah. Stephanie Rawlings Blake, she placed a curfew on the city from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., <laughs> except that goes into effect tonight. Today, yeah. Tonight. Not last night yeah. when all this was going on, but yeah. tonight. So I'm not sure what the, uh, the it's issue like, was It's like they, it shocked them, right? They didn't. They yeah. thought the funeral would be a peaceful day, and the family was The crawling, funeral was earlier in the day. Peace. Earlier in the day afterwards, it, it kind of uh, – other these other events, I, I don't know, you know, location-wise where the funeral was versus right. where most of the the uh, confrontations happened. If those were this was were Freddie connected. Gray's funeral. Remember, he was the one that was arrested by police, and within a few hours of being in custody, was in the hospital with a broken neck and then died. And then you know, basically, just the family just barely got his his body. Also, yesterday evening, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland. Announced a state of emergency, and he called the uh, National Guard to assist in efforts to uh, stop the riots. Mm. Twenty-seven people have been arrested during the riots so far. Police say they will be working to identify more from social media and video footage. I told you the one picture I saw of a uh, young man on a police car. He's trying yeah. to put his foot through the windshield. He kind of turns his head to the side as the picture's taken. He has a sort Busted. of look like, oh, no. <laughs> Wasn't there a video, too, of a mom chasing down her son like, get oh, out of here. You right. get back to your room. Fifteen police officers injured no, no. Uh, by teenagers, protesters throwing bricks and rocks. Uh, the cops were holding up their their shields that they had, trying yeah. the plexiglass shields, trying to deflect chunks of cement flying their way. Um, the police commissioner says this is not protesting. This is this is not your First Amendment rights. This is just criminal acts. And a lot of them were saying that, right? So, I mean, this isn't the way you do it, and yet it's. There, these there's so much anger, there's so much frustration, and we, at some point we need to listen. And yet, this isn't the way you get the attention. You got to do it. You're burning down your own city. Yeah, it's tragic. It doesn't make sense why that. That's the the next step is. Yeah, you can protest in the streets, sure. and then it somebody uh, you know, does something and it sparks off the the let's, let's blow the and place then up, so. the morning. I mean, and there's a lot of people and there's some incredible footage of just regular citizens like grabbing some of these protesters and pulling them away and pushing them away and like saying, don't do this, not here, not this way. And so I think some of it is just it's these kids that can't be. And then it's it's these I don't know what they are. They're they're outside groups that are coming in, stirring the pot. Yeah. And um, but the, the people of Baltimore are amazingly strong they just this isn't a sign of the people of baltimore the people of baltimore are humiliated by this this is just a bad moment but ah what do you do i mean in the end really this is this is america right and so this is the fourth story of of racial police problem violence and um something's got to happen we yep. need we need a leader, and and can you imagine your first day of being called in by the president? Lynch has now got to go in, and that's her first job, yep. job one. Because they've called for a uh, Department of Justice investigation, yeah. into how this is being handled. <laughs> that's a big As first day, ma- mainly because the police haven't said anything, yeah, because they claim that they have a, their investigation is ongoing. And there's certain rules they have to follow, but sure. you'd think there'd be a way they could share some information and try to. It's like you quell need, this. that's why you kind of need the third party to come in because yes. you can't have. They have all the rules in Baltimore that don't apply pretty much anywhere else in the state for to protect the police. Yeah, their police bill of rights, but you almost need the the Justice Department to come in and say, "Let me just let's just clarify a few things." 
lay down some laws. I don't know. Something. They need communication. And imagine, though, that's your very first call. <laughs> you just were an appointed and then and yeah. passed through the Senate or whatever, and now your first call is, okay, I need you to go figure out this Baltimore thing. Oh. Tough stuff. But that's why you take the job. That's exactly right. So um, in other news in Nepal, yes, people are very angry. Tens of thousands are devastated by the earthquake. Now the number's up to 5,000 people that have been uh, counted as killed. They're expressing their frustration because their government has had a slow response to the crisis. Yeah. Um, international aid uh, has finally begun arriving with the, uh, the, in, the, the, airport, in the area, but the airport it. is so small. It's yeah. not meant for big cargo planes and this type of traffic they're getting trying to help. The home ministry, a home ministry official in the capital said uh, the death toll from the magnitude stood at, at this time it was 4,000. It's now up to 5,000. They're estimating it can get to 10,000 because mm. there's all these outlining small uh, villages and stuff where the, no one's been yet. Yeah, yeah. No one's had a chance to go out and see what's going on there. And that's wow. what these rescuers are trying to get in country so they can get out there and, and see what if they can help these other people. Uh, hospitals are full to overflowing. Water, food, and power are scarce, raising fears of waterborne disease. On Monday, the United States announced an additional $9 million in aid, bringing the total U.S. disaster funding to $10 million. That'll probably go up. Mm. We're sending uh, – I know the uh, the military is sending uh, – C-130s with all current you know, supplies yeah. and also experts to go in and help with the recovery. See, again, that's – it's just – it's tragic and yet as this is where we could as Americans go in and make a big difference or just as any country. This is where we step in and, and think of how little money it would take to actually make a huge difference in Nepal right now as well. Uh, we have got a great, um, a great interview coming up. You know, we heard about German Air accidents, and uh, we've heard about Malaysian Air, all these all these different airline accidents. We thought we wanted to talk to one of the best uh, that we could find, and who better than Soli Solenberger? Do you remember him? He's the pilot that saved about 150 people in a when he landed his airline in the Hudson. Remember after uh, some engine problems, we're going to be talking to uh, to Soli Solenberger up next. We're going to talk to him about German Wings airplane uh, crash. We're going to be talking about Malaysia Air and the safety of uh, flying in the United States. Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Got a great guest uh, on the air with us right now. You know, there's been so much in the news about airline safety with the German Air uh, crash and also Malaysian Air, those airplanes missing a few years ago, China Air, all of these different crashes. And uh, it makes us wonder, are we safe? Are we safe still flying? In fact, are we more safe today? Then uh, 20, 30 years ago, it doesn't always feel that way. So we wanted to bring in an expert. Who better to talk about safety in uh, the airline industry than Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger? Um, he was, uh, if you remember, a great hero that executed an emergency water landing of a U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the Hudson River. Do you remember? Off of Manhattan. He had just uh, taken off of LaGuardia, out of LaGuardia. 
Airport on January 15th, 2009, and was able to still set that airplane down, um, saving the lives of 155 passengers and the crew aboard that aircraft. Everybody survived. Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, we are honored to have you on the show. Thank you, Matt. Great to be with you. So great to have you on. And I mean, I know we've had you on before, but you're somebody in my mind that can can truly address safety and the airlines industry as a captain. Uh, how long did you serve as a captain, and how long were you flying? Oh, gosh. Last month marked the 48th anniversary of my first flying lesson. Holy cow. Um, I was an airline pilot for just over 30 years, a captain for 22 of those, uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force before that. So you know, these are things I've worked on and cared about my whole professional life. Do you – I mean, that's so amazing. How many air? How many hours – uh, of airtime do you have? We hear about that all the time in these reports recently. Just over 20,000. Jeez Louise, 20,000 hours. And the neat thing about your industry is you actually count that. The rest of us don't count how many hours we've done something. Yeah, well, that's how we get paid. Yeah. And that's, that's the metric that uh, the industry decided, you know, 80 or 90 years ago to yeah. keep track of, to, to, you know, to log one's experience. Because, you know, as you can imagine, this is one of those professions where having seen a variety of different challenging situations over the years helps to kind of build your, your fundamental knowledge, your your skill, and your judgment yeah. that, that helps you to survive. And that's literally what kept people alive in the early days of the, of the profession was you know, if you paid attention, you learned your lessons well and didn't forget them, then you lived long enough to get some experience. Oh, it's so true, really. You had to run by your abilities. It was all about you, wasn't it? Anyway, now it's about the team. Yeah. The team and, I guess, the technology. And talk about what goes through your head. I mean, as somebody 20,000 hours under your belt, what goes through your head when you see the catastrophe, really, of German air? Oh, the German wings crash. German wings. shocking at so many different levels. Uh, What apparently this one particular person did is anathema to what every professional pilot lives and believes and holds dear. Mm. Does it, I mean, that in a way breaks every code, everything that you've probably ever seen in your years. Yeah, and that's, you know, fortunately, it's such an extraordinarily rare occurrence. Um, but it's, that's what's so uniquely unsettling and shocking yeah. about this is it's such a complete violation of trust. And really, that's essentially what helps people get on an airplane is that one trusts that they'll be taken care of, that there'll be professionals who will be dedicated and, and exercise great care on every flight. Mm. Do you um, do you sense and, and clarify for us, is, is the industry safe? Is it is it safe? Is it as safe as it's ever been? Is it more safe? Where are we when it comes to safety? Air travel is safer than it's ever been. It has become ultra safe. Now, in the last year, we have had an increase in fatalities. It's been terrible. We've had a number of terrible catastrophes in the last year. But still, the accident rate is as low as it's ever been. Hmm. But I think we're getting some wake-up calls in the international aviation industry. Uh, We need to take a closer look at how we screen pilots and how we uh, handle uh, mental illnesses. We need to take a closer look at what the relationship is between the human component and the technological component in our cockpits. We need to have 
a system that takes into account human abilities and limitations and the limitations of technology, so we use the best of both. When you've sat in the pilot seat with a co-pilot, how much, uh, what is the relationship like between those two people? It's a, a team of near equals. You know, the captain ultimately is the decision maker, but the first officer now, and hasn't been for 80 years, uh, an apprentice, um, the, the first officer is someone who's going to be a captain, and they work very closely together to to monitor not only the performance of the airplane and all its component systems, but of each other, and they they help each other, assist each other, back each other up. We have a lot of procedural safeguards in place. We have hardwired them for the best and most effective communication and decision-making, workload management. So we really have learned how to take you know, individual strangers at a large airline whom I never have met before, and that was the case for me and my first officer that week on our flight. We met three days before this challenge of a lifetime, but yeah. we, we were so well-trained at such a high standard and knew our roles and responsibilities so well that we could face this ultimate challenge together, having only met a few days before. We're, we are talking with uh, Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, the third, by the way, and you remember he he's, you know... Again, you probably hate the idea of being called a hero. You were doing your job, but uh, you were able to um, save 155 lives by setting your airplane down in the Hudson. And this idea, it's interesting that when you were able to do that, you had really only known your co-pilot three days. But your your history and your just your skills and and just the, the professionalism is what was able to kind of make a quick team. Yeah, that and the thing is that, that we individually had done for 30 or years before, yeah. 30 or 40 years before, and our industry had done to to make this uh, possible. In other words, we didn't have to completely reinvent the wheel that day. We just had to put the last few spokes in place because we had built such a firm foundation of teams trained in the consistent use of best practices um, that we were able to innovate. What's interesting about this is that in our flight simulators, at least the ones I'm familiar with, the ones that we've used, it's not possible to practice a water landing. The data does not exist. They aren't programmed for it. Believe it or not, the only training we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. So as it turned out, as the investigators found, after the bird strike and the thrust loss right after takeoff, we had only 208 seconds until we were going to reach the surface of the Earth. We had to decide uh. where that was going to be and how to do it um, and get right something for the first time that we'd never done before. Do you, do you think – I mean, I'm sure they've all learned from that. That's one of the things I love about your industry is it seems like, you know, when a catastrophe happens or a near catastrophe happens, learning is, is the next priority. And almost everything we've learned throughout the history of aviation has been – uh, lessons learned from sometimes really bad accidents. And, you know, it's been at the cost of lives that we've learned these important lessons, literally bought with blood that we dare not forget and have to relearn. Mm. We do have a wonderful formal lessons learned process in aviation, particularly in the United States, where the National Transportation Safety Board investigates transportation accidents and they find out what caused it. And most important, they make recommendations for how to improve safety going forward to prevent something similar from happening again. The downside in our system is that while the NTSB investigates and makes recommendations, they cannot mandate that they be adopted. Mm. It's up to our nation's aviation regulatory authority, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, to choose to mandate certain things and to make the airlines comply. And as with 
most incidents and accidents. In our case, the NTSCB made several dozen recommendations for improvement in safety, and yet only two, to my knowledge, have been implemented oh, and really? by the FAA and the airlines, which is very disturbing to me and to the NTSB board members with whom I've spoken. Some of them are, are very obvious and common sense things, like, for example, instead of what you find on most domestic flights now, uh, where you have only a seat cushion for flotation, one of the recommendations is that there should be a life vest for every passenger on every airplane, right. not just the ones that are scheduled to fly long distances over water. That has not been adopted as yet by the industry. So it's a great mm. frustration, and we need to be doing a lot better job than we are. There's some things that we're just not doing a good enough job about in spite of how safe we've made aviation. Well, and it seems like um, some of the innovations after 9-11 that were picked up by the American um or the FAA, I guess, and the NTSB, it seems like those weren't necessarily in play in the German wings flight. No, as it turns out, and I, I didn't realize this until just recently, it was primarily the U.S. carriers that had the two-person-in-the-cockpit requirement yeah. and not not international carriers, and most of them have begun to follow suit rapidly after the German wings crash. Do you sense that that would make a difference? Um, it seems like... Um, you know, I guess you'd put a flight attendant or somebody else in the cockpit if the pilot needed to leave. Is is that something you believe needs to stay and maybe needs to be, you know, adopted worldwide? Yes. And it it's a simple, easy-to-do intervention uh, that might have helped in this case. It certainly has important logistical advantages. For example, you know, when when one pilot leaves the cockpit to attend to physiological needs to go to the laboratory, for example, um, then the other pilot is in the seat. We're required, for obvious reasons, when you're the single pilot remaining in the cockpit, to be seated at your station in your seat with your seat belt fastened. So if there's sudden turbulence, you're not going to be displaced from it mm. and unable to control the airplane. You have to put your oxygen mask on uh, if we're above a certain altitude to make sure if there's a sudden depressurization of the airplane that you're not, you know, rendered incapacitated. Um, and so you're immobile. You're not able to get up from your seat to look through the peephole in the cockpit door right. to see who's trying to re-enter. You're not able to open the door and there you there's go. an electronic device to use. So for a variety of really practical reasons, it's important to have a second person in the cockpit to assist the pilot who's flying the airplane seated in his seat or her seat. Um, and it, it might have helped in the German ring. German that's, it's, it, and that's, I guess that's it. You really never can tell. Um, we're talking again with uh, Captain Sully Sullenberger, um, just just a heroic pilot, but also one that cares about safety, that, that understands it. We're trying to understand even more about the industry and, and some of the changes that we can we could be making. When we come back, we're going to, to get a little more in-depth. I want to find out about what are some of his recommendations about you know, uh, mental health screening. And also I want to find out there's been some other reports about technology potentially replacing a pilot. I'd love to hear his ideas on that. I know he's written an article about that. More with uh, Soli Solenberger, also the author of Making a Difference, Stories of Vision and Courage. You can find it uh, anywhere books are sold. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, one of the goals on the show is to let you understand, learn real leadership. And, uh, man, have we got a great example of that. Captain Chesley Soli Sullenberger III is joining us. You know him as the guy, the, the pilot that was in charge of that U.S. Airways flight 1549 that landed on the Hudson River after it struck a, a bird and, um, boy, lost an engine, went down, if you remember, and a water landing, uh, something you just don't see ever, really. Um, and he's joining us today as as... You know, an expert in this field, somebody that cares about it, that spent more than 20,000 hours of flight time, friends, which is a lot of flying. Soli, thanks for being here. We really appreciate your time. Of course, Matt. Talk um, a little bit about the the mental health screening of pilots. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you think, what are some changes that might be able to be implemented? What would you like to see? What would be, you know, deep enough, but not so deep that, you know, we're going to make pilots, you know, not want to do their job? Well, you know, one of the great advantages that we've had in the United States for most of the time since the Second World War is that we've had primarily former military pilots become airline pilots. Uh, And that's beginning to change. Uh, There are fewer military pilots now it used to be that about 75% of the pilots newly hired by the airlines were military trained, and now just about the reverse is the case. Um, so it's really important that uh, if we are not having as many people go through the really uh, rigorous, disciplined, um, demanding military uh, flight track where they've been looked at and scrutinized and given all kinds of tests before they even become military pilots, that yet to, and then to be scrutinized again during the screening process to be hired by an airline, that we have an equivalent method in the civilian world yeah. where there is uh, you know, enough screening, enough people have looked at and flown with this particular pilot, and this pilot has had a number of different jobs and been screened by several employers before they apply for the airline so that you know, he, he or she has had to prove themselves you know, competent, reliable, yeah. and worthy of trust before they get to that point. But in the end, and I've talked to a, a variety of mental health uh, professionals, including Dr. Stuart Eisendrath at uh, UCSF, and uh, self-reporting is still the essential element, that in spite of how much screening you do, and, and there are some limitations to that, yeah. how effective it can be, it's really up to uh, self-reporting in many ways, and not just in terms of reporting mental health issues, but in terms of the 40-plus year history we have in all kinds of safety reporting systems in aviation, reporting safety deficiencies, reporting errors, maintenance problems, and other things. It's it's only from self-reporting that we can get certain critical safety information, and we just can't get in any other way. So we have to make sure that we have a just and not a punitive culture mm-hmm. in organizations, or else you just drive the problems underground where they can never be solved. Yeah, you want to be able to, if you have to report something, you know, that you, you know, you're having stress because of a divorce, you need to, you need some time off. It'd be nice to know that you're not going to pay for it later. Right, and uh, you know, from what I've learned in studying this, and I've thought a lot about this over the years, um, you know, mood disorders are fairly common mm-hmm. in the general population. Um, and since the pilot population is an important subset of that, uh, and even though we are, you know, 
very disciplined and very dedicated, perhaps more than average, it still affects individuals that way also. It's also important to, to understand, and this is a, a real dose of realism that we all have to have, is that even if we had the most efficacious screening program at the outset of one's career, there's no guarantee that somewhere subsequent to that they might experience some uh, mood disorder. So it's it's really important that, that uh, we have effective processes in place. One of the things that we've done for decades in the airlines is through the pilot unions, we've had effective professional standards committees, peers who are trained in helping to address issues like this. Huh. I, and I think that's I think that's important because you having a bunch of pilots be a part of that seems to make a big difference so that it's pilot friendly enough. We, we've already heard a lot of stories about, you know, the pilot getting on the plane and flying under the influence or whatever. And some of that is also just probably coping mechanisms of trying to deal with other stresses and other life issues. So and, and that's a good example, because back in the 60s, um, the, the pilot unions, the airline managements, and the FAA all had an effective partnership, and they began this partnership um, in the HIMSS program, the Human Intervention Motions, um, I'm sorry, Human Intervention Motivation Study, uh, and for substance abuse to identify people, get them off the line, get them the help they need, and if and when they were certified to come back to work. Something similar, I think, this same sort of partnership is essential also in terms of mental health. Hmm. Have you ever been in an airplane, solely where you sat next to somebody that you really questioned their competency or no. their or their or just their you know their mental health? No, I have not, uh, and and I think that's an indication. That's a big of, indicator of of how we do a great job of making sure that the right people do this job and that the wrong people don't. And you know, let me tell you, that's a great point that you bring up, and one I intended to get to is what a close working environment the cockpit is yeah you're essentially especially since september 11 2001 with the security requirements yeah. and you're and locked the, in aren't the, you? the armoring of the doors you're locked in this little closet with your co-worker for 12 14 <laughs> and, and sometimes 16 hours a day mm. uh, where you're literally rubbing elbows where no interaction goes unnoticed um and you have to work closely together and you begin to learn all about them. And, and not that you can discover everything right. about them, but you, you really do notice a lot. And I think it would be really, it would take an exceptional effort for someone to hide over many days together like that, many months together yeah. flying like that, uh, something that was really going terribly wrong. Does it, does, is there already an existing um, way for you to report something strange that you're seeing that, that could be kind of an anonymous report? Yes, again, through the Professional Standards Committee that the Pilots Association okay. have. Um, and if that isn't sufficient, you can go to the official route through the Chief Pilot Airline Management. And if that doesn't work, you or the airline can go to the FAA, and they can bring someone in to have them uh, have to demonstrate mm -hmm. in the flight simulator their competence, their skill, their knowledge, their judgment, their ability to, to focus and cope with the demands of the job. What do you and that's something that we do on a regular basis anyway. Okay, yeah. You, you, we do it every uh, six or nine months, depending on the airline, uh, to demonstrate our, our knowledge, our judgment, our, our competence in many ways. Um, and this other avenue is an additional way that on certain special occasions you can bring someone in who, who is having difficulty. Yeah. It, um, it, it's, it's such an interesting thing because most people in their occupations aren't as um, – pay, nobody pays attention to them like you guys. Well, I mean, there, there's no other professional group 
that is as scrutinized right. currently as we are. None, certainly not the medical profession. And we're subject to random drug and alcohol testing. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, it, but I'm not saying, I'm not defending the status quo. I'm just no. saying that's right. what we're already doing. It statistically has worked very well, but there may still be things that we need to do better, and sure. we need to find out what they are. Well, and then also it just seems so interesting because then, you know, then a catastrophe, some disaster, something happens, and then everybody jumps on almost out of fear. And, uh, you know, I, one thing I really wanted to ask you is the during the, the whole – I think it was the day after they found out that this, this pilot may have intentionally, you know, kept the other pilot the, – the pilot out. The co-pilot kept him out and then he, he changed the coordinates or whatever and flew into the mountain. Um, the, the news went crazy and, and all of the, the news uh, sources started talking and, and in a way there was a big debate about what they were reporting. Were, were they giving away too much – too many secrets, too much information – that might tip the hand of security down the road. What was going through your head as you saw that debate going on? Were, were, was too much of the curtain being lifted, or you yes. think we're fine? No, I, I agree that too much of the curtain was lifted, and that happens repeatedly, particularly with the 24-hour um, outlets who have to fill a lot of airtime. Right. Um, and I, I, that's something I have never done. I, I have never mentioned the perpetrator's name. Yeah. Um, if we should mention a name, it should be the captain's name who would try heroically oh. to regain access to the cockpit. Um, I have never talked about the specifics of what we do and how we do it in terms of a security uh, other than what's already been made public. And I, I think it's a mistake to, to go too far in that way. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways to accurately inform the public so that they can make important uh, informed choices about public policy, but we need to keep more of our security um, under wraps. But, it, but I think much of what has been uh, said on the air, unfortunately, was already on the Internet. And some of it was um, in training videos uh, that were you know, made by, for example, one of the airframe manufacturers. Yeah. So there's already a lot of stuff out there. But I, there, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we go too far and too much detail about it. I mean, really. I mean, we, I mean, they were like showing where the switches are to unlock certain doors and – I mean, uh, it, it, and it's all for a news cycle, and I and I think sometimes we're 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 not playing the long game very well. And I think, in fairness to those outlets that have done that, one would still have to know the proper code, okay, to use yeah. to do that. But but uh, why why even go in that much detail? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Um, just I, uh, I I'm gonna I want to I've got so many questions for you, Soli. Here's another one. Just your quick gut. Uh, idea. Where did Malaysian Air go? We don't know. We are not going to know until we find the airplane. Uh, it's uh, it's one of those occasions where very little is known. Mm-hmm. There are so few facts. Um, what's interesting about this is that from such sparse pieces of information, they have narrowed it down to this huge area that they're searching right yeah. now. And that's from those seven, what they call handshakes, these attempted contacts between the satellite communication system and the aircraft systems. And they used data that had never been used this way before to try to measure the, the angle of the antenna that was receiving the satellite communications from the aircraft uh, and then using Doppler techniques, see if it was moving away from the satellite or toward the satellite. And from that extrapolation, then they've been able to, to say it's probably in the uh, area of the Indian Ocean, just uh, southwest of Western Australia. Mm. 
but they're searching it. I just saw a news report yesterday that says the Australian government and others are still partnering to continue this search. They're going to keep going, they say, until they find the aircraft. Mm. And it's important that we, we do that. You know, aviation, uh, in this formal lessons learned process that we have to make aviation continually safer, the international community is just not tolerate this level of ambiguity willingly. Right. They're going to keep on going until they find the aircraft, and hopefully they'll find out not only what happened and how it happened, um, but why it happened. I'm not sure we'll ever know the exact motivation or exactly who did what, but we should be able to find out some of the things that were mm-hmm. done. That's good. That's comforting, at least, isn't it? Um, you know, with last month's tragic uh, or the the accident um, in April or May, uh, March, I guess it was, in the French Alps, a lot of people are saying, you know, these, you know, pilots intentionally bringing down planes. Maybe we need to create a system where it's totally advanced automation, no more pilots. I know you've written on this. Um, what What's your take? Yeah, I just wrote a piece on LinkedIn about this a yeah. few days ago. Um and I've been, again, I've been thinking about these important issues for over 20, 30 years. Um, I took a, a course at USC taught by the late uh, University of Miami professor, Dr. Earl Weiner, a real pioneer in automation studies from the 80s on. And um, let, me, let me just put it very bluntly. Technology, at least for the foreseeable future, cannot replace pilots. Hmm. Uh, one of the limitations of, of technology in any domain and certainly in aviation, is that technology can only do what has been foreseen and for which it has been programmed. It's up to the human element to be able to adapt and to innovate to, like in our case, do something we've never done before, never trained for, right. get it right the first time in a very short time frame. Um, I don't think the technology exists to, to replicate what we were able to, my crew and I and others, to achieve that day. Um, could technology have helped in the German Wings case? Perhaps, but it probably couldn't happen for the next unanticipated case that it hadn't been programmed right. for. So it's really important that we have the right balance of technology in our cockpits and we assign the right roles to the human element and to the technology so that we build on the, on the strengths of both and we, we avoid the weaknesses of each. You know, humans, on the other hand, are poor monitors. We're not good at watching technology do most of the work for hours on land, right. waiting for the one time in a thousand when it, when it doesn't do what we want or expect. So you actually human. We we really should probably reverse the roles that we are heading toward in in cockpits and make humans more directly engaged, aware, and involved in the process, doing more of it, and having the technology, you know, give us help yeah. with decision aids and and uh, give us Cues and, yeah. to avoid exceedances. That would be, you know, I think from my experience, a much better use. Uh, both the human and the technological components. Well, and how many times has a pilot, you know, uh, averted an issue that no one has ever heard of just by simply being there, solving it, fixing it, anticipating it, and, and you know, those never turned into more anomalies yeah. that we're now dealing with. And the other important point is, too, that we've really learned how to, to take a, a team of, of pilots, a, a team of experts, and create an expert team. We've and that's something I used to do at the airline is to teach these skills, the team building, the leadership, the workload management, the error trapping, uh, backing each other up just so that you can collaborate wordlessly when the workload is so high you don't have time to have a mm-hmm. conversation about it. That's what Jeff and I did on yeah. that flight to the river. Um, so uh, 
these human skills are critically important too. managing not only the technology but monitoring each other. And, and that's something you just can't replicate currently with technology. And it seems like technology could be better served to monitor the airplane, create even a more consistent communication, more information transfer. So like a Malaysian Air, we could have had a lot more data if we had, you know, if we had stronger technology that way. And there are efforts afoot to, in the international community to improve uh, reporting over remote areas, especially oceanic areas where you, there's no ground station, and you have to use satellite technology to receive information from aircraft. Hmm. You know, Sully, this will be the last question, I promise. I'll let you go. And then, But you've written a book. You've written two, Making a Difference, Stories of Vision and Courage, and your other book, Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters. I'd love to hear, as, as somebody who has sat in the seat in the moment of just utter chaos and managed your way through it, landing on the Hudson with 150-50 souls in your, in your airplane, um, saved, um, the, the, talk to me just about the courage of the flight crew of the German Wings flight, the captain that was doing everything he could to break through the door, the 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 people the passengers that were in the back what's what was their courage like what was that like i think one of the things that passengers want and need when they board an airplane uh, is to know that there's someone along with them there's someone who is as dedicated to saving every life as they possibly can someone who shares their values someone who's never going to give up who's always going to try to find one more thing that they could possibly do to become more successful, even if it's by a fraction. That's what we did that day over the river. I'm sure that's what the captain and his crew did on German wings. Hmm. It really is. It's, and it's, again, we, we only hear about it when it goes bad, but uh, you guys are there day in, day out, making it happen. Uh, captain uh, Chesley Sully Sullenberger, we so appreciate you and your great work. And everybody, go out, read those books, Making a Difference, the stories of vision and courage, and also highest duty, my search for what really matters. We so appreciate you, Captain. Have a good one, and uh, take care of yourself. Keep flying. Ah, It's good to have leaders, isn't it? People we can follow, people we can learn from. Uh, In every industry, they exist. Who are your leaders? Who are the people you'd be willing to follow? Are you one of those leaders? That's the goal of this show is to give you the tools to become the kind of leader you need to be, you want to be. Uh, like Sully Sullenberger. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, you know, we need a guy like Sully Sullenberger to head to Baltimore and just fly this this chaos that's going on in Baltimore right now. How about that answer about um, has he ever sat next to a co-pilot that he felt unsafe with? And he's like, nope. Not once. Which tells us that whole German Wings airline crash is such an anomaly and you can't you can't prepare for every anomaly. And so maybe some of the lessons of that uh, could also be used in Baltimore. There's no way to fully know what's going to happen in a powder keg like Baltimore. You can't know. <sighs> so, and you know what? We still don't know where Malaysia Air is. 
(laughs) Isn't it crazy? Uh, He also – I love that comment about, you know, we don't fly um, and practice water landings. (laughs) I guess – I guess that's a failure except for him. Major, major success. And in fact, if you haven't done it, I would go get online. um, Go to YouTube and look up uh, Soli Solenberger Hudson River landing thing. Because they put together um, an animation of the airplane flying and kind of how it took off from the airport and and the route it took, and then they had they put over the the top of it the voice of Sully and the air traffic controller, and the air traffic controller is basically saying, uh, "Okay, why don't you divert?" He says, "We've we we hit some birds and our engines and lost power in our engines. We need to we need to return." And then the 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 traffic controller is like, okay, why don't you uh, divert to LaGuardia? And he's like, uh, that won't be possible. And he's like, okay, then why don't? You, how about Kennedy Kennedy Air? Why don't you divert to Kennedy JFK? And he's like, uh, yeah, that's not happening. We're gonna, you know. Then he, then his last words were, you'll, you'll you're gonna find us in the Hudson. Ugh. Can you imagine knowing you're the pilot with all these people, and you're going down in the Hudson? We're, you're going to find us in the Hudson. And then the amazing video. Do you remember the video where they come out and you see an airplane floating in the Hudson River? Like how cool is that? As a pilot, how good would you feel when your last person gets picked up in the Hudson and you can now you know, deboard, deplane? What, deplane! Did, did he fly after that? Yeah. He continued flying? Because you, you yeah. could have just kind of done the whole mic drop thing. Yeah, right there. Bam, Look what I just slam did. Slam your mic down. <laughs> you can't top this. See ya. Like, uh, would that not be the best feeling in the world, stepping off of the wet wings of your airplane as it's floating, knowing everybody's off, everybody's good? <sighs> Sully Sullenberger. That is just – that is machismo. That is the coolest, most macho thing in the world and honestly he's just the greatest guy and such a professional like I try to make him laugh here and there and he just he's not going to have it he's not going to have a laughter he is he's good Um, but right there tells us that's the kind of leadership we need we need somebody that'll just stare down the flipping Hudson River and who thought to put it in the Hudson except where else are you going to land it yeah that might have been just by circumstance, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we're going down, it happened to be over water <laughs> but and I've talked to another pilot about it. He says that normally you're just going to cartwheel through that thing and just shred your plane, and he just nailed it, huh, yeah, well, what have you done today? Well, yeah, I made toast, <laughs> drove, yeah, I landed a plane in the Hudson, saved hundred and fifty lives. Now he's out speaking. Teaching corporate executives. He's on and the news. He's on the news. Yeah, he's a correspondent for he's a CBS correspondent, News, helping him work through all the all the other aviation problems and accidents. Anyway, leadership, folks. That's one of the goals of the show: is to show some great leaders. And Sully Sullenberger, one of the top. We're going to take a break, my friends. Again, come back. Give you more tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program, everybody. The show where we give you the tools, the ideas, everything you need to grow a healthier, happier life for you. Right? We can't do it for you, but we can go out and get the latest uh, and the greatest, the best thinkers in the fields of human development, leadership, just life skills. We all need them. Today we got a great uh, show coming up. We're going to be talking with Josh Becker a little bit later. If you feel like you've got just too much junk, your life is too full of clutter, this is this is the show for you. We're going to be talking about uh, a minimalist life, how to cut back, how to do with less and the benefits of that and where to begin because you may not always have to begin with your closet. You know, oh, I don't want to go do that. The closet's got so much junk in it. Maybe you just begin with your thinking. Maybe you begin with your goals, with your beliefs. What do you believe uh, you need all this stuff for anyway? We're going to be talking about that later today. Uh, just great, great stuff. But before we do, we got a lot of a lot of information going on in Baltimore. Last night, looting and rioting erupted. If you've watched the TV news at all, you've seen the, the pictures that have come out of there. Freddie Gray was the... The man that was killed, uh, it was a week ago, wasn't it? Yeah, About well, a week or ago, more, yeah. A week or more ago. 25-year-old Baltimore man died after suffering a spinal cord injury while in police custody. The police are still investigating the incident. They haven't put out a lot of information as to what they have found, which has kind of angered some people and kind of raised tensions in the area. The mayor of Baltimore placed a 10, to, a 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew on the city, which goes in, into effect tonight. It'll be in place for a week. It's not retroactive. So they can't go back and have the curfew last night. It no. It starts tonight. I don't know if that would have helped. The governor yeah. of Maryland called out the National Guard to assist in the uh, well, in the subduing of last night's riots and the keeping of peace kind of today as you're trying to uh, make sure that this situation doesn't continue. Uh, 27 people arrested. 15 police officers were injured. Including by, broken bones, they're saying. Major stuff. Teenagers in the videos, you would see teenagers throwing uh, rocks, pieces of cement. At uh, police officers, and that, that's the thing they're finding is this is this is this is the teenagers. This is like spring break. Teenagers gone wild. They're they they're going off, and a lot of the a lot of the citizens of Baltimore are seriously frustrated. This is not. You'll probably hear the same sort of comments you heard coming out of Ferguson, where there's groups of people that want to protest peacefully, yeah, and some who come in to agitate the situation, mm. and. It's complicated, right? And it's got to – we got to solve it. So uh, you're, you are seeing some interesting leaders as well. Pastor Corey Brooks uh, is coming from Chicago. He's an activist but also is, is coming in to create some peace and to teach these kids there's healthier ways to, you know, to go in and, and to, to express your feelings. And the feelings are real. We also need to go eventually have some dialogue in our country about – what what's going on? Why do so many uh, minority communities have such negative feelings toward the police? What's really going on? And uh, and how do you get rid of that? How do you handle that? Right. Change it? In Nepal, uh, the official number death toll now up to five thousand. Uh, mm. Injury totals thousands more. The uh, emergency aid is now slowly getting into the country as they're figuring out. Apparently, last night, yesterday, I read a story. Airplane is landing. On the airplane was a reporter from the Associated Press, and they heard the pilot say that nobody was in the control tower. 
landing without so no one's trying to organize and make sure people are safe as they're landing and, oh. and all this is going on and so they went up and yeah there was nobody in the control tower and so they've had some um, some issues as they've yeah. tried to get the relief uh yeah this going is just in that bigger area. than so, they can handle so money's going in there's places where you can uh, probably find areas or places to donate play uh, you know co- or, uh, organizations trying to help out in yeah. the area um, today, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on gay marriage. The uh, the same-sex couple who brought the suit, if they win the dispute, marriage for same-sex couples would become legal nationwide. This is the big one that everyone's been waiting for. So they're just barely beginning the arguments today. A decision will be made expected by late June. So plan your vacations accordingly. Apparently. So don't 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 worry that there's going to be some announcement. You're going to miss it. It's not going to be till June that we'll yeah. find something out. Uh, Secretary of State John Kerry says the world is closer than ever to reaching a comprehensive nuclear deal with Iran, but the work is far from over. Yeah. They have till the end of June, I believe, to have the Yeah, it's closer actual, than ever. This is it. This is happening. He keeps making sure everyone knows that this isn't <laughs> a, uh, a lost hope type of thing. Uh, Rand Paul tells Jewish leaders on Monday he met with 30 Orthodox Jewish leaders at the Brooklyn, New York headquarters of the National Society for Hebrew Day Schools. He criticized the decision by George W. Bush to invade Iraq, arguing that Iran has become more powerful with Saddam Hussein or without Saddam Hussein and declared President Obama's toppling of of Muammar Gaddafi in uh, Libya as an utter disaster. Wow. This is from the New York Times. He said he told this to all of the Jews. The 30 Orthodox Jewish Jewish leaders in this meeting he was in. Well, I wonder how they took all that. Yeah, he. Uh, it goes on saying uh, he added that along with strengthening Iran, each time we topple a secular dictator, I think we wind up with chaos well, and true. radical Islam uh, that seems to sure. rise in its place. He insists that he is not an isolation isolationist and gave partial backing to Obama's uh, deal with Iran. The interim agreement that we are under now, while not perfect, is better than no agreement and no hmm. inspections. Well, I mean, he's he's right. Every time we topple. And create a vacuum, a bunch of, you know, folks jump in. Yeah, sure. So he's right, but not in a right, conservative kind of sense. Yeah. (laughs) As he's trying to run as a Republican. But he's not an isolationist. No. But at times that sounds like that. It does sound that way, yes. Which his father was, and that was everybody's fear, is, are you your father? No. Just his son. A heroic high school teacher tackled a gunman Monday morning in a Washington State high school. Really? A uh, senior at the school tells the, da- the, uh, the, the, uh, the Daily Beast, where I got the story, that a male with a gun re- walked into the school, paused for a second, fired a round into the air. Holy the shooter cow. later was confirmed as a student. A government and uh, civics teacher named Brady Olson was sitting nearby, tackled the shooter before walking back to his classroom, visibly shaken up, <laughs> according to the, uh, the student. Oh, my um, heavens. Well, we will now begin class. The suspect is now in custody and no one was injured. What a stud teacher. So the student walks in, shoots in the air. The, the teacher tackles him. They subdue Disarms him and goes him. Back, to, back to class. Okay. We've got to take a test now, everybody. <laughs> Can you imagine? How do you go back and just act normal? That's I a hero. Know. That's a hero right there. You, you might need to go take a breather. Just kind of collect yourself for Go to the bathroom and get sick. A Texas A&M professor failed an entire class calling his students a disgrace to the school <laughs> in a fiery email that said he had reached a breaking point. 
Professor Erwin Horowitz told students in his strategic management class on the Galveston campus of Texas A&M that enough was enough and that they lack the maturity level to enter the workforce, according to a local TV report. Interesting. Yesterday, he said, he goes on, he goes, yesterday I reached the breaking point. I was dealing with cheating, dealing with individuals swearing at me, both in and out of class. I got to the point that the school had to put security guards at that class and another class, because this is the fallout from failing. He <laughs> failed everybody. All these kids. Now, there had to have been somebody in the class that's, you know, just the quiet little mousy one. Yeah. So the school is looking at it like you you can't say the entire class failed. Yeah. Somebody had to. Somebody got a D. So they're reviewing it and uh, they'll make an assessment that way. But I just thought it was But funny. interesting. That sounds like a high school class. You know, that it doesn't. Does. That's, this is Texas A&M? Yes. Interesting. So he says that they lack the maturity level to enter mm-hmm. the workforce. Interesting. That's okay. Which is a nice way of saying you have no future. Yeah, You'll you never guys. get a job. <laughs> but I, I love finally that we're – let's fail a few people. Well, a I mean, few, if they but it. an entire class. Yeah. There's, there's still the goody, goody, goody. Just did everything right. There's that, that curve razor. Yeah. They're in the back messing right. up the curve for everybody That's else. Right. I hate those people. <laughs> those smarties. Cool. Okay. Well, man, good news. Interesting. Maybe if we failed more people, you know, we'd, we'd have, you know, better workforce, better jobs. Probably not. Hey, coming up next, we're going to be talking with Josh Becker. Now, he is a a minimalist, and you may not have ever heard of that. They're people that are just trying to simplify their lives. Smaller homes, fewer things, no storage units. He's really got an interesting story, and uh, he has the website becomingminimalist.com. He also has written the book Simplify and Clutter Free with Kids. Josh Becker will be joining us, helping us declutter our lives up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, can you imagine a world with fewer phone calls and emails? A world with fewer must-have items, fewer time commitments. You know, maybe you just own fewer shoes or purses or watches or tools or devices. You know, can you imagine that? Not having to clean out your garage every year and just throw stuff away or take stuff, you know, to the storage unit. You know, uh, this is the life that in 2008, our next guest, Joshua Becker, chose for his family, and he's not thinking of going back anytime soon. He joins us uh, us now. Mr. Becker, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. And you you are, I guess we we would call you a minimalist, right? And, And, but... But not to be, you know, not to be confused with an extremist minimalist. What do you mean? Yeah, you know, ultimately, minimalism, this idea of living with only the things that you need, uh, ultimately comes down to a, a, a question of values and a question of pursuits and purpose. And there are certainly people who, um, more than anything else, want to travel the world. They want to live out of a backpack. Yeah. And so they own just enough stuff that they can hop on the next plane and get to the next country. And, you know, for us and for me and my family, we have two small kids. You know, our, our desire has never been to travel the world. We, we want to be involved in our community. We want to be involved in being ho- ho- hospitable and having people over. And 
So we said, you know, what, what do we need to own in order to accomplish what we want to accomplish? And then what is uh, just distracting us from it? So that's what we removed. I love it. I think it, I really think it's, it's something we all, to one degree or another, and I know in your blog at becomingminimalist.com, you talk about this. It's really up to the individual for how you want to go about this. But your story just began um, with you cleaning your out, was it out your, your house, your garage, your possessions? You just had a lot of stuff you had to throw away. Yeah, I was cleaning my garage on a Saturday morning. The average American home has 300,000 items in it. Oh, and my heavens. Well, most of us don't think we have that many. Uh, that's the average, so most, <laughs> of us, most of us do. And, yeah, it was just a morning, Saturday morning of cleaning my garage. I spent hours working on this project, as many of us do. Um, if it's not cleaning the garage, it's, you know, cleaning something else out. And all morning long, my son was playing alone in the backyard and just had this realization, I think, the the juxtaposition of the two scenes, you know, a dirty garage and a, a son alone in the backyard, that not only did everything I own not bring me happiness, but it was actually distracting me. It was actually taking me away from the very things that do bring me happiness and fulfillment and purpose. And uh, that began our, our process. That was the morning of, let's get rid of this stuff <laughs> and let's start living a, a new and better life. Yeah. I mean, it's like we've got, we, we have stuff for our junk and then we have storage units for the junk that didn't make the house junk. And we just can't, we just keep piling it on. Where do you think this is coming from? This kind of consumerism mentality, this need for things? Why, why do we as a society need so much stuff? Yeah, gosh, there's certainly a, a number of factors that, that lead up to it. Um, probably the, the two primary ones, I, I think, are, number one, we're, we're fed this lie from society. I mean, our whole economy is essentially based on us buying things, and essentially based on consumerism, and uh, some of the smartest men in the world are just trying to figure out how to, how to get us to, to order their products with yeah. one click, you know? Right. And um, so uh, 5,000 advertisements we see every single day, and um, I, they're all telling us that we'll be happier if we have more, we'll be happier if we buy whatever they're selling. And so there's certainly that side of it. And then uh, I'm, I'm not so quick to, to uh, discount our, our own personal responsibility on the issue. And, you know, I think if you look throughout human history, you, you see that we, we seem to have a little ingrained desire for selfishness and, and greed and uh, accumulating as much as we possibly can for our own little kingdoms. And so I think I think those two things come together and uh, we, you know, you, you add in, you know, fast fashion and you add in cheaper products and um, I think you just get uh, into a world that's oversaturated with things. Yeah. Most of us know it. We just can't see a pathway out. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect storm and, and they're inexpensive. So just buy two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you get... Two is usually cheaper than one. That's with some right. Of Isn't that crazy? I mean, we do the same thing with our own diets. You know, you, if you want the super extra large, then you get a free whatever. And we're, okay, yeah, that's a deal. It's almost like we're, but we're going for the deal when we're not even noted, knowing if what we want is, is what we're buying anyway. I mean, what, like you found out, maybe just time with your children would be more valuable than, um, you know, having all these possessions you need to sort through. I think in most, you know, most of the times we we only see the cost of an item as the financial cost. So, oh, it's just thirty cents more to upgrade my meal, or it's just a dollar more to to get two for the for the price of one. And uh, we don't count the cost on the other end, right? We don't right. we don't cost what the what the extra soda and the extra grease is going to do to our bodies. We uh, we don't even picture what it what it means to bring something home. You know, everything we own has to be 
cleaned and cared for and organized and managed and repaired and replaced and you know this is uh we we spend our weekends taking care of our stuff we've we've simply become stuff managers more than human beings sometimes how do you um i mean i know you're you're a best-selling author you've written the book simplify and the book clutter free with kids how do you how do you go about how do you suggest we go about starting to to just simplify and, and cut back on a lot of this stuff well, it starts with a, a decision. I mean, it starts with just the understanding that, uh, okay, all the things that I own are, are actually becoming a, a big distraction in my life. It starts there. And then most people, when I, we have this conversation, um, they, they, can see, like, they can see the benefits of less. They can understand what, how it might improve their lives. But they tend to get caught up in, well, what am I going to do about my sentimental things? What am I going to do about my kids' toys? What am I going to do about, you know, the storage unit? And, and our minds tend to run to, like, the hardest thing in our house that we would ever have to get rid of. Yeah. And, and I always say, no, you don't have to, you don't start there. Like, you're always only going to set yourself up for disaster if you're trying to get rid of the hardest things first. Most of us could walk through our house with a bag and fill it pretty quickly with things that, that not only do we not use, we don't even want in our house anymore. <laughs> That's right. And uh, so I, I just say start there. I mean, take a bag, you know, pick a drawer maybe, pick a closet, and fill a bag, fill another bag, and, and um, uh, take it to, you know, I, I think there's such great joy in, in donating and yeah. finding a local charity that you believe in. And, you know, go give your stuff there and just and just feel this joy, this relief that comes from it. And then, you know, you get to the sentimental stuff. You get to the books. You get to the harder-to-reach places a little bit later when you have a little more momentum going. Well, and uh, yeah, and I wonder if sometimes, yeah, we make it so complicated so we don't have to blow this paradigm up. But, I mean, in the end, too, just the joy of not having your possessions defining you, that seems in and of itself so freeing. Yeah, I I forget the... um, I forget the origin of the quote, but um, someone once said, um, our society constantly tells us the joy of having things and never mentions the joy of not owning things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you look at a Buddha or a Gandhi and a Jesus Christ and Mother Teresa and how little they all really owned, and yet they were so impactful. I, almost. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, we have these conversations and, um, you know, people get – throw around words and you get credited for starting movements and and like gosh this like this has been around for thousands of years <laughs> right. like every spiritual leader since the beginning of time has been told us you know <laughs> not to own stuff we don't need and to give away the, our excess and to, and to care for those who have little and uh, you know, there's a, there's probably a reason that's a, a common theme from um, you bet from the spiritual leaders of the past. Because you lose yourself, you find yourself. That's one of the great you know quotes. Is and so if you could lose your things, the all of these things that you tend to identify yourself with, man, deep down, what are you then left with? It's just beliefs and and relationships and connections. You know what? It is a it is a very difficult process. Um, you know, we took one van load of stuff to charity, two van loads to charity, felt great. By about the third or fourth van load of things, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily physically difficult, but it became very emotionally sure. difficult, not because I was tied to the things, but because I realized that I had four van loads of things in my house <laughs> that I didn't need. Yeah. And, and I said, why? Like, why did I buy four van loads of things that I don't need? And, and you start 
having to search your heart a little bit. Well, maybe I was a little more jealous. Maybe I am a little more greedy. Maybe I was trying to impress people. Maybe I was a little more susceptible to advertising or looking for happiness in the things I owned. And these are very difficult questions, but as we discover them, I think it leads to a, a better hmm. life on the other side when we realize the lies that we bought into. It's so true. And it's so really, I mean, maybe that is the hard thing about it is you have to kind of confront you know, why you, what you're hiding behind, why you're hiding behind some of this stuff. And then just even the things that we do automatically. I mean, look at how much we do without ever thinking about it. We just buy another gift. We buy another thing. We buy another product. Every Christmas, we we got to have more. And I mean, it's just, and some of it is just automatic. So you're really just saying, become more intentional yeah. in your yeah. life. Gosh, you know, that, like, that was the big thing for us that I... Well, number one, it it forces questions of values. I mean, it forces questions, okay, what do I want my life to be about so I know what tools I need to keep in order to accomplish it? But as you begin identifying those things, then we're able to become far more intentional about the things that we own that actually help us get there. Also, then that leads to, okay, how am I spending my time? You know, how am I taking care of my, my physical body? What are the relationships in my life? Like, it brought... For me, it was almost a, a gateway of intentionality. Yeah. Decluttering the stuff that had unintentionally accumulated in my life forced me to evaluate all the other things I just unintentionally accepted uh, that didn't actually need to be there and weren't actually contributing to um, much more um, fulfillment or purpose. <laughs> it really is. I think it's so powerful. Let's um, let's take a break. Again, we are we're working here or talking here right now with our great guest Joshua Becker from the website becomingminimalist.com. Uh, it's a wonderful blog as well, and he's got incredibly, I think, just basic, healthy ideas, questions, that, and just tools that are on the site uh, and on his blog. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to go in-depth on the 10 most important things we can be doing to simplify our lives. It's from one of his latest uh, posts in his blog. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back here, right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, any of you just drowning in clutter? You can't find something on your desk because you've got so much stuff on your desk or your room or your house. Are you piling it up now? Anyway, today we're talking about a minimalist living and uh, learning how to kind of declutter, how to simplify your life. Joined uh, with an expert on the subject, Joshua Becker. He's a writer, a blogger, a speaker, a pastor, husband, and father of four, and the, his family lives a minimalist, minimalist lifestyle with fewer objects and less clutter. He uh, also has the website becomingminimalist.com, which is a great uh, guide to, and information on, on just how to simplify your, your life. Again, Joshua, welcome back to the show. Yeah, great. Thanks for finding time. Uh, to be with us. Um, t- you, you put a post out on your blog um, called The Ten Most Important Things to Simplify in Your Life. And w- and I'd love to go through a bunch of those. W- what you're talking about, though, isn't just, it's not just tangible things we need to simplify. There's a lot of stuff we could do to, to, that we could simplify. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember writing the post, it was more um, um, just a 
kind of look back at the decisions that I had made, some of the things that I had, I had noticed as we, as we began removing possessions and began thinking intentionally about other aspects of our life. Like these are some glaring things that, that popped up to, uh, popped up in my mind of just things that we had, um, you know, just uh, allowed things to accumulate in these areas, not tangible things, yeah. but just distracting things. It seems like a great kind of inventory that we should all be taking just to go through each one of these and say, okay, where are you here? Where are you here? The, one of the first ones that you mentioned, though, is just to simplify is, um, and this is all with a goal to be more balanced and and more joyful, really, uh, is our possessions. Too many material possessions complicate our lives to a greater degree than we give them credit. Uh, what, what do you What do you mean when you talk about possessions? I guess that's all things tangible. Yeah, uh, Randy Alcorn um, says it this way: um, Every increased possession adds increased anxiety into our life, and the the problem is that we we slowly accumulate more and more, and, and we fill our closets more and more, and our, our drawers more and more, and we don't even realize how much of our time and energy, our money, has been wrapped up in these things. And I'm I'm generally convinced that we we have no idea hmm. how much of these things were, how much of these our, our finite resources we're wasting on material possessions until we begin to remove them and find this new freedom that we never even remembered was available to us. Do you see that in your own life, um, being a minimalist? Do you see how much, do you see that you're saving a lot of money, you're saving a lot of energy, you're saving a lot of time? Yeah, like an unbelievable, to an unbelievably degree, to an unbelievable degree. Really? Uh, you know, we, we started journaling the, the website Becoming Minimalist was just a journal at the beginning. And like very early on, we started recognizing some very significant benefits of, of owning less. And I mean, Less cleaning was as, as early a discovery as as any of them, and it's um, it's unbelievable when you, you know, I I love having a clean house, but I hate cleaning, and I found oh well, I just own less stuff, and that seems yeah. to work pretty well. I mean, you buy a car, you've got to maintain the car, you've got to wash the car, you've got to vacuum. I mean, there's a lot of stuff just with one car. Add two or three to it. Add a boat. Add a house. Add a yard. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, at a closet full of clothes and closets yeah. full of linens and right. drawers that don't close. Another idea you bring up is we need to kind of simplify our, our life. And one of the things you want us to evaluate is our time commitments. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, we, I think we get in this trap that, that, um, that we think that we, we need to be busy to be productive or the busier we are, the the more productive we are. Uh, the busier kids are, the more you know potential we're setting them up for in our lives. And uh, I, I just don't think it's the case. I think we add a lot of things into our lives that that don't even align with our greatest values. You know, other people are putting expectations on us, or everyone else is doing it, so we think that we need to be uh, doing it. And in the meantime, we lose quiet, like we lose mm. calmness, we lose solitude, and it's only in those times of solitude and quietness that we're able to even evaluate the life that we're living, much less find what our role is in it in order to recognize the things that need to be removed. I think we just busy ourselves out of any any personal reflection altogether. That's so true. And, and that could be your time, just your schedule can get busier and busier, and then you're, you're hustling from one place to another. Also, like you were just saying, your head gets busier. One of the things you say we need to simplify are our thoughts and our especially our negative thoughts. We need to sort through and notice how much of that maybe needs to be decluttered. 
Yeah, and, you know, I've even mentioned, I just a thought that spurred to my mind. I mean, most of our busyness comes from our desire to to have wealth. Like, yeah. Like, how, like, like we just add things on our life because we, because we want more money, right? Because, yeah. because we, we think that money is going to bring certain things into our lives. And, um, you know, certainly there's, there's far better things for us to, to pursue than, um, than riches and, and wealth, which most of, most of us already are. But, um, yeah, you know, the, the negative thoughts are, uh, granted, you know, pretty difficult. You know, I think most of us know that we, we don't want to be jealous and, and we don't want to be envious and unforgiving and harbor resentment. You know, like, most of us don't want those things to be true right. of our lives. Um, finding a pathway out of them can be difficult. It requires this this time of quietness. You know, it, it requires us to uh, to stop chasing other things. And I think one of the one of the reasons quiet is difficult because more of these negative thoughts emerge, and we you know search mm. our hearts a little bit deeper. So it's it's very difficult. But um, like like we've got to recognize that before we're ever going to move um, forward from it. It's so true. Like I just sat there and I thought, man, yeah, a lot of this is we we don't want the quiet because then you got nothing but time to think. Um, one of the things that you also say we might want to declutter our our list of goals. I mean, we want to be skinny, we want to be healthy, we want to be uh, we want to be a cook, a chef, making interesting new meals. We want to be employed gainfully, making a lot of money, great grandparents, all these. How do we how do we go about our goal simplification? You know, I think there's a piece of just uh, recognizing what what our greatest goals are in life, uh, because oftentimes they they come in conflict with one another, and and probably family life is a good example of any. I want to be a good father. I want to be a, a loving husband, but I also want to succeed in my job, and I want to move up the corporate ladder, and, and I want to own a boat, you know? <laughs> and, um, and in and of itself, when they're not in conflict, being good at your job is, is not a, a bad goal. Right. But sometimes, oftentimes, the goal of becoming, um, um, you know, well-known at work becomes in conflict with being a loving father, and we can't do both. And, and then we have to decide, we have to recognize, okay, like, what do I really want to accomplish? What is my greatest goal in life? And then everything else needs to fall in line underneath that. Mm, that's so true. The um, the boating thing is so – I hear all the time, well, yeah, we bought the boat so we could be together as a family. Well, how often yeah. do you go out? Well, twice a year. Yeah. It's because you're so yeah, busy that's... trying to pay for your boat. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely, right? We're all – uh, working um, tons of hours in order to pay for the mortgage for the big house that we can't even be in. Yeah, and then we. Uh, so another one you do bring up is your debt. You really got to simplify your debt. Yeah, and you know, there's. Um, I mean, there's some debt that that pops up that that's unplanned. Um, you know, I think of you know medical, medical stuff yeah. that, that pops up and certain emergencies, and, and I mean there there are some very difficult situations that um, people need to to work themselves out of. But uh, generally speaking, I mean we we're just buying too much stuff and. And the the average American home has tripled in size in the last 50 years, and still one out of ten Americans own offsite storage. I mean, the the most practical solution to most of our money problems is just to stop buying things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just that's just zapping our our time and energy anyway. Um, and you know what? The the problem is that that forever, you know, for most of my life, for most people's lives, this idea of spending less was seen as a sacrifice. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. That, oh, uh, well, if I get out of debt, I have to live in a smaller home. I have to own, you know, less clothing. I can't have as much stuff in my house. I can't have as expensive furniture. And I think one of the things that I've discovered about minimalism is that just owning less is better. That yeah. I'm, just, I'm just freed up to do whatever I want to do with my life. And so spending less isn't a sacrifice. It's actually a pathway to better living. And in that way, debt becomes much easier to get rid of. Budgeting makes sense to me. It's not a sacrifice, but it's an invitation. It's a, it's all about choice. And then I, I just noticed we make these stories up to kind of keep us all trapped in in the pattern in a way like, well, yeah, I mean, you, you want the best for your family. So we may as well buy more square footage so we're farther away from each other in the rooms. I mean, yeah. you, you buy a big house, and you don't even hear your kids anymore. It's nice. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that we 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 made a change of is we we bought a smaller house after going through this this process and uh, found that I mean we we really like it. My kids are twelve and nine, and uh, we enjoy being together. We went down to one television, mm. and guess what? You know what? When we when we watch television, we watch something together, and and we learn how to compromise. And one person wants to watch this, one person wants to watch that. And normally in a, in a normal house where there's more television than people, they just all retreat to their rooms and yeah. they watch whatever they want. But we're like, no, no, let's figure out how to do this together and what are we going to watch and how are we going to function as a, as a family unit? I, it seems like um, one of the things that's, gonna, that's really going to be maybe the next temptation or the next iteration of the problem is the technology. Because now all of a sudden, uh, yeah, everyone needs a phone, right? I mean, you don't want your kids stuck. And so and you get them a phone and, you, well, yeah, it ought to be a smartphone. So then all of a sudden, we're all just getting too much screen time, too much tech time. How, how do you suggest we simplify in that regard? Sure. Well, um, there is a point where there's a certainly a place for technology. And I would be the first to admit that technology makes this lifestyle more possible today than ever before. Yeah. I mean, my... My smartphone is like a Mary Poppins handbag. It's got <laughs> books and movies and maps and credit cards and yeah. my exercise journal. You know, I mean, it's everything all is there. in my phone. And so, so I don't have to carry around boxes of books anymore because I, because I have it available to it. The, the problem becomes when we chase technology just for the sake of chasing technology, when we, when we upgrade just because there's an, there's an upgrade, when we, when, we, when we spend three days trying to figure out how an Apple Watch is going to benefit my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Patrick Rohn is a writer who's up in Minneapolis, and he probably says it the best way. He says, when it comes to technology, the question is, what problem does it solve? Um, and, and that's how I try to decide, okay, what technology do I buy? The question is, what problem in my life is it solving? Because it's, if it's not solving a problem, it's only adding a problem. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's it's so true, too, isn't it? And, and then again, we just get swept away if we're not intentionally looking at it and choosing it. What, um, what would you say to the rest of us, you know, as kind of a just – what we all need to know, how could our lives change just by taking the simplest of, of solutions or choices and starting to, to become just a tiny bit more of a minimalist? What, what would that do to our lives? I think that you, uh, anybody, would be shocked at how much their life improves as they own less and less. And when I, when I speak on this, I'll always have the, the room, like, turn to your neighbor. I'll say, turn to your neighbor and just make a list of how your life would improve if you own less stuff. 
And, like, the room erupts in, in noise immediately. Oh, less cleaning, more time, more money, easier to find stuff, to be better for the environment, to be a better example for my kids. You know, I, I become more content. Uh, you know, I have less comparison with other people. Like, the, the room erupts with, with ideas and, and thoughts on this. Yeah. And I would say it's got to start there, right? It's got to start where we see the benefits. And then just go do a small – go do one living area in your room. Like, like, go take your living room and just pull out everything that doesn't need to be in your – you don't have to donate or throw it away. You know, just pull it – put it in your storage or something. Put it in your basement and just sit in this less cluttered – tidy room with only the things that, that actually need to be there. And most of the time, you'll recognize, hey, this does feel better. There's less distraction in my life. And then use that momentum uh, to go forward into other rooms and other spaces. That's powerful. It really is. I, I commend you on it because it, it, it's such a hard journey. And yet, I'm glad you're ahead on the road because I definitely am going to take on some of your ideas. Uh, simplification, really, but honestly, like you said also, just buying some space for your head to yeah. to think and and to, to grow. Well, we appreciate it. Again, uh, we also would just recommend everybody go check out the website, becomingminimalist.com. And go uh, read some of the great writings there by Joshua Becker, either the book Simplify or Clutter Free with Kids. Again, good stuff, good stuff. Helping you find the good in the world, my friends. It's right there, interestingly, and it might even be just in empty space, but you might need to move some clutter out to see it. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion right here on The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, are you guys uh, you guys going to now take on the minimalist approach? You going to live a simple life? I feel like I have been. I just uh, today I'm moving into the new apartment that I'll be living in with uh-huh. my with my future wife, and there's been a lot of stuff to throw away. Did you get rid of like a lot of your junk, like yeah. your Pokemon? sheets and well no not not yet so you're gonna keep those yeah there's a lot of other stuff that i'd throw away like your darth vader mask no no the other stuff so oh like yeah uh, like papers oh okay just old old school work yeah i figured that my drawings from third grade uh time to get it's time to go yeah that's scary but really like packing is more just throwing stuff away yeah you just need to get rid of junk yeah because you're going to get a lot of gifts. I've already given you one. I've already given you my gift. What, what was that? That was the my holder for my iPhone. Oh, the holder that you're currently using for your phone? Yeah, the iPhone holder. Okay. You want it back? You can have it back. No, it's, it's okay. It has you my like name on it. It's an iPhone holder. That's so kind. So you can listen to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, with Kaylee. This this is really high quality though. It even has a spot for the cables. Yeah. I mean, it's no, it's, it's super high tech. Yeah. We nothing but the best on the Matt Townsend show. But we're gonna give them away someday at the reception. I'll be giving no, right, at, right at the front during door. your toast. We just hand them out. I, what I'll do is a drawing. That's the way I'll gather names at his wedding. Create your database. Yeah, everybody fill out this form. We'll do a drawing. One of you will get one of my iPhone holders. <laughs> And you say, promise, it will not be spam. The rest of you will be spam. It spammed. will be email you really want. <laughs> we will not you sell your it. information. <laughs> so you're still getting married, though. 
Yes. Countdown. What's the what's the timeline? Uh, we're four days. Four days. Seven hours. Twenty six minutes, approximately. Yeah, but who's counting? Yeah. Well, that's good. PowerPoint's done. Locked and loaded. How long is it uh, now that you've it's, added the videos? Uh, I like to think of it as seventy five minutes. You would like to think of it as, which means what? Yeah, is it going to be longer or shorter? The PowerPoint itself with the embedded videos, 75 minutes. The introduction to the PowerPoint, uh, about four four minutes. So we're almost to 80 minutes. Then the toast itself, another 15 minutes. Wait, so what is the PowerPoint presentation if not the toast? Oh, it's the pre-toast. Okay. It's the I call it the run up to the toast. So the toast is how long? Fifteen minutes. So you're doing an eighty minute pre toast. Ninety five total. Nine. Okay. Ninety four if you're counting. For your one hundred twenty minute reception. Yeah. Okay. And we'll be doing a tango. That'll be about another half hour. Yeah, you mentioned having a, a half hour special tango song. Well, it's actually forty minutes if you think of the pre uh, stretch and the post stretch. <laughs> the pre-tango stretch. Yeah, because you got to stretch out. I don't want to like have your Kaylee pull her hamstring when we're doing the tango. That would be horrible. So instead, we're going to stretch. Make sense? Yeah. But you know what? It's going to be a killer event. You're going to love it. Yeah, I think we need to change the invitations to having your picture and like featuring or starring Matt Townsend. Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Is it too late? It seems too late to do that. It's four days out. We can send out an email to everyone maybe. Yeah, I, I would do that. Just as a reminder, you know, the, the reception is this Saturday. Come for the toast. It's featuring Matt Townsend. It's going to be a great toast. But we're going to record it and that's probably going to be the show on Monday. Just the toast and the pre-toast. And then the tango. I mean, that's that's it's about two hours of content. I didn't think about that. That's a lot of content, right? Well, and then the, on Saturday, yeah. During the tango, the the audio that we'd be playing is probably the crowd's reaction to to your dance. That's a great point. Just kind of the gasps and oh, hear, hearing ooh. people as they faint. Ah, oh. <laughs> ooh, yeah. I'm so glad you're loving this. You wait, dude. You wait. Till you see my powder blue tux flashing through. It's amazing with my ruffles blowing in the wind. Have you got anything for us, Terry? A new report out of Oxford University found that less than a quarter, right, 21% of all the 702 categorized occupations in the United States yes. were deemed creative enough to likely evade an impending robot takeover. What? 25% of the jobs. Which means three-quarters of all jobs will be could be done by a robot, according to this report. Really? Uh, what about our job? I mean – Just like, being like selfish, just, yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean I don't want – yeah, everyone else matters, but what about our job? So here's the top five jobs least likely that okay. they could become automated in the right. near future. Yeah. One, translators and interpreters. Oh, really? That won't be automated. I guess that's what it says. Interesting. I don't question the results of when it says a new report or oh, a no, study no, says. No, yeah, yeah. Two performing artists. Okay, yeah, yeah. You got to perform. Three radio broadcasters. Oh, so sweet. All right. Yes. I have never yes! heard job security. It's job security right there. So great. Uh, four film and TV producers. Yeah. Five research and development on natural sciences. Whatever <laughs> that is. 
Well, is there is there a robot takeover coming? Well, you know, every every few years you start hearing about how in manufacturing they've yeah. automated more. I it's watched true. yesterday. There was a video about how they make those little Lego figures. Uh-huh. And the whole process is Robots. automated. See, uh, all the way down to the painting of the little faces. So, what about doctors? I mean, a lot of that could be automated. I mean, some doctors actually seem right like robots. Well, yeah, you know, absolutely. What I mean? <laughs> so, now that you think about it, how are you doing? It would improve their signature on the uh, prescription. Yeah, you they just need a line. You can, yeah, scratch. Yeah. And it, it goes on to list all the other jobs and this stuff is like fantastic. That. This many is the best many news. employees in agriculture and manufacturing are in grave danger oh, of being see, made redundant sad. by yeah. machines. So, but that means they're all going to get into radio. Well, we we know that there are limited spots. Yeah, it's so. let's just say it's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. I go into translation. Translation. That's what I would. It was number one. Yeah, translators and interpreters. So don't least don't likely. do farming. Don't do don't work in manufacturing and don't work in radio. Yeah, go everybody go into translating. It does a body good. The third least likely job to be replaced by a robot. Yeah. That's such great news. You know, that's the first time going into radio seemed like a really good idea. <laughs> Actually, the second time. Yeah. First time was when you were like 12. Yeah, you're like, this will be fun. I will be so famous. Also, I will know so many people. In other news, a burnt bowl of macaroni and cheese forced a brief evacuation at the uh, Capitol in Iowa. Ooh. The Iowa Department of Administrative Services said that somebody burnt their lunch in a microwave behind the Senate chambers and they had to clear the Capitol because of the smoke. Is that not the worst when you share a lunchroom and somebody just brings something like, you know, curry fish head? I worked at a place someone brought in broccoli every day. Uh, and when you microwave broccoli, there's a smell. Yeah. And, and then, oh, And then when you burn it. Yeah. Or the burnt popcorn. Yeah. Or any of those, it's just you can't get rid of it. It st- it sits around for hours. Ah, or like there's a commercial out there where someone goes, "How do you? How long do you microwave cod?" <laughs> You're like, oh man! First of all, you microwave it at home, and then you just uh, you always undercook your cod. I like my cod semi rare. <sighs> it's good to know we'll have a job, folks. We're gonna have a job in the old radio. We're going to take a break, my friends. Do some headlines. We'll be right back after the break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Man, what a day we've had. Today we talked to Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger. That incredible pilot landed his airplane in the Hudson River, for heaven's sakes, saving 150 lives. Man alive. Are you telling me there's no such thing as heroes? That guy nailed it. And we also talked uh, about... You know, how to declutter your life, how to kind of create a simple life. And then coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be talking to, to Dr. Mark Sherman, who is uh, he's taking on a battle, folks, to um, to.
to basically strengthen men and young men. Boys, he believes, need better role models, better better lives. And uh, boy, after today and what you see going on in Baltimore, you can see that happening. There is a backlash. And, and today, uh, what's going on in Baltimore, we always think of it as a as you know, as a kind of a race issue uh, and being oppressed as a race. I think our guest later today will also talk about it also might be a young man issue, a young man issue. Did you know that for every 130 females going to college, 100 men are going to college? So definitely, you know, women have, have had to fight for rights throughout their life. But now what might be happening is we're forgetting the boys and we might be seeing some of that playing out in Baltimore and in a lot of our inner cities as well. And so we'll be talking about that later today. Again, back to the Baltimore, the riots uh, that are going on there. Um, it's just tragic. It's, it's, a tough, it's, it's a tough problem that needs some serious leadership. What are we going to do? Terry's got to solve that. That's all on me apparently. No, yeah. it's, it's a matter of – there's – as we talked about with Ferguson before, there's a there's a problem in the the city with the way the people are interacting and dealing with with the police and vice versa, yeah. and this is just kind of focusing all the attention on the problem. And is there a solution? I don't know, but at the moment, you end up having people burning cars and and yeah, trashing pharmacies and things of this nature, which don't help anything. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of those people end up uh, being kind of uh, instigators that just show up to cause problems instead of people they're trying to. Yeah, and that's solve I guess that's the point. And they think a lot of them are the are youth, are they're high school kids. A lot of the adults in Baltimore are like, "Okay, we can protest, just not this way. Don't burn yeah. our city down." Because you, you'll hear people you do want to do the, a, a peaceful protest. They want to have their voice heard. And then there's the other people that show up and start yeah. breaking things. A guy yesterday was cutting a fire hose. They're trying to put out a fire, and a guy runs over with a knife and slices the hose. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, you know, it's all caught on video. That's one of the interesting things about it. A lot of these people are going to be fairly easy, to easily identified simply because they're not covering up. That guy had no. a mask on. But yeah. the, the one guy jumping on the police car that looks yeah. over at the camera is like, ah, jeez. Mom's gonna kill me. Yeah, he he was had. He, <laughs> pro, I, I don't. You don't. You get uh, you get into that heat of the moment. And you start thinking that this is a good this idea. Is such a good idea. <laughs> oops. So oh, well. that that situation continues. Uh, they're under a curfew for the rest of the week, starting it. And I love I love just some of the community leaders that are stepping up. A lot of people are frustrated with the mayor there and the governor there because. You know, that's got out of hand yesterday. But the community leaders, the pastors, they're stepping up, doing what they can. That's that in a way are the people that have to lead. And also parents. I think I saw a video of a mom chasing her son down like, get home. You are so grounded. Yeah. Oh, we also talked about what's continuing in Nepal as the uh, relief effort has been slowed by a lack yeah. of access to the area and the government kind of having a slow response. And now it's starting to get some of that relief supplies into the area to help the people out. And uh, as we see the casualty numbers rise yeah. on an hourly on basis. Rise. And there'll be so many more just from these far out, incredibly, you know, remote villages, you're going to get numbers and data that I don't know. It's tragic. It's tragic. In other news, the uh, President Obama is hosting Jap- the Japanese Prime Minister today. Mm. Shinzo Abe is his name. Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe. 
They use the occasion to th- he uh, the president used the occasion to thank the island nation for its greatest exports. Yeah. Obama did not extol Japan's vaunted cars or technology, but rather its contributions to art and to the awkward office parties. <laughs> Karaoke. He goes, today is a chance for <laughs> Americans, especially for young people, to say thank you for all the things we love from Japan, like karate, karaoke, manga, anime, and, of course, emojis. Are you serious? That's what he's thinking of. Well, I hope he's laughing. It probably it sounds like a joke, but that that, that, was, that was kind of the open, which is kind of funny. That's that's hilarious. We thank you for emojis. Yeah, because I I know quite a few people who cannot communicate oh, without no. an emoji. Well, no, you need a yeah, you need a smiley wink. I'm of course the guy going. Why do you find that on the keyboard again? Oh, <laughs> you have to do this. Yeah, emojis are too much work. Google has released its first ever trend report mm. offering insight into which fashion trends uh. are on the way out and which are here to stay. Okay, well, let's see. Maybe we've got some of them here. The re- <laughs> I doubt it. The report looks how often certain styles of clothing are Googled to predict how popular they will be that season. Okay. So not all searches are created equal, though. Google di- differentiates between sustained growth trends, such as jogger pants, which saw the, the significant trend searches in the last year, yeah. versus seasonal growth and rising stars trends, which only have fleeting search popularity. Okay. Examples in the later category include kale sweatshirts, which are already on their way out, yeah. just so you know. Okay, yeah. Kaylee, you can stop wearing your, your kale sweatshirt. I love kale sweatshirts. Kale is clothing. Yeah. It's horrible. Uh, but jogger pants, I saw James searching that just the other day. Right. They are so in right now. I saw Mike searching uh, yoga pants. Apparently they're so, on the way out. Something about the pants. I don't know that I've ever actually searched for articles of clothing ever in my life, ever. I'm going to do it right Well, now. when you're searching for some, some to buy online, maybe you'd search for it. Nope. Oh. Nope. Uh, Terry, do you, do you know how popular if it's in style for, let's say, T-shirt, jeans, and sneakers? I don't know if that would ever go out of style. Okay. I'm glad to know that whatever I wear is always in style. You mean every day? Y- yes. Pretty much? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It uh, works. Let's just say that once he's married, that'll change. <laughs> once you have a, a fashion consultant in-house, yeah. It's going to be so great because he'll start wearing like collared shirts and, you know, slacks. She'll call them slacks. Slacks. Elizabeth Warren. Yes. You, you had some uh, <clears throat> opinion – Recently saying that she would be a, a, a good candidate, someone that she's, should run. Well, she's another – yeah. she's And, and the, the Democrats seem to really like her. She has some uh, advisors that have told her that simply by remaining vocal, visible, and progressive on major issues like Wall Street, uh, influence, international trade, student loan debt, she can shape the presidential debate from the outside. Mm. At least that's – And not have to get in yet. Her camp is hoping that with one advisor tells, told the New Yorker, over the weekend, that she can get Clinton on record and can hold her feet to the fire by yeah. simply going public with these things, and then so remember, so like Hillary Clinton will follow. Joe taught us that uh, she is kind of more of the liberal side of the Democratic Party. Yes, so they're trying to pull Hillary more to the left, while Republicans are trying to pull their people more to the right. And Hillary is one who tends to want to go a little bit more moderate, I guess. In some people's minds. Interesting. And she doesn't have to get in the race, but she can still influence her. Okay. Go with that. Florida's avocado industry. Mm. Right? Yeah. Grave danger from laurel wilt, a fungus spread by the ambrosia beetle. Ouch. 
It's believed to be imported from Asia. If the ambrosia beetle spreads to Texas or California, California produces 90% of U.S. avocados. America might really may have to find a new way to find its guacamole. What? So then the question is, do we start importing more from Mexico? But if they also get infected. So what Florida is looking at is they need to be the first line against the ambrosia beetle yeah. and this fungus. So war. what they're doing is that they are employing drones to find diseased areas and dogs to sniff out the disease. Interesting. So they can treat this and save our guacamole. See, this is a ploy. This is, the, this is Texas's way of sneaking drones into our world. Is that what it is? To save avocados. Oh, it's always oh, But, but wouldn't, you, wouldn't you make that allocation for your personal – Yes. Personal security and personal uh, – Oh, know, yes. Uh, for your li- – Privacy. For your, your well-being. For avocados. For health. Absolutely. Uh, avocados are essential. That, that You can't have chips and dip without them. That's it. Go to battle, Texas. Seriously, save save the avocado harvest. Um, here's what uh, we're going to do. We're going to take a break, come back, and talk to Mark Sherman. And Mark uh, is an editor of The Boys and Young Men. Attention must be paid. It's his blog. And he's basically trying to advocate for more attention, healthier focus on the young men in our world, uh, which might be playing out, as you can see, in Baltimore. These uh, A lot of times we're paying more attention to the young women and the girls than the boys, and we may be losing these boys at a much higher rate. He's here to teach us uh, what we should be doing to focus on you know, strengthening our, our boys and our men as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back with uh, Mark Sherman after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, honored to have on the show Dr. Mark Sherman, um, who is the editor of Boys and Young Men. Attention must be paid. That is a blog that promotes achievement among boys and young men and says that today, with women still feeling quite justifiably, um, you know, taken or, or underappreciated, they, they need to get out and, and we need to start focusing on the young men as well. And some of this goes back to um, a, just a lot of great research that uh, that he's been doing over the many years. Dr. Sherman received a Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard University and has taught at the State University of New York um, at, at New Paltz for more than 25 years. Dr. Mark Sherman, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, talk about it. And you saw you see what's happening also in Baltimore, and they're believing a lot of these uh, the the riots over last night were were a lot of the young adults that are the youth that just got out of high school and uh, the, I mean the, the, yesterday and they and they just started getting you know riled up into the riots. Talk about what your goal is. Why are you why are you so wanting to focus on young men and boys? Well, thanks, Matt. Um, yes, I I was thinking about the Baltimore riots as well. Uh, basically, it's that um, over these many years, uh, boys and young men, and men in general, have not been getting um, much attention. And quite quite reasonably, uh, women and girls have been. I mean, yes. I'm old enough to remember the women's movement, the modern women's movement, starting in the 1960s. But the fact of the matter is that it became evident, at least to me, by the early 1990s, if not before, 
that boys were also struggling. In fact, they were struggling a lot, especially in school. And yet, they just didn't get attention. I think the feeling, well, men are in charge, men are in control, look at Congress and so on, look yeah. at CEOs. But those are men, um, and that are, those are not boys. And, and what's happening in the changes, favoring, a lot of them favoring women, I'm not going to be against that, but I think we are losing sight of the fact that our young men in the United States and other developed countries, I'm not talking about the developing world, but developed countries, um, boys and young men are really not doing as well on so many measures as uh, girls and young women. And, mm. and I, for, for, for young men of color, um, it, the problem is particularly acute. And so that's what, that's what deeply concerns me. Well, and in a way, you see, you see it. You see that, I mean, their incarceration rates are higher, their, uh, their life expectancy is lower. I mean, in every, especially... Uh, young men of color are, are more, much more likely to, to just to, to have issues now. And President uh, Obama came out and immediately created, you know, my brother's keeper, which was to focus on on that on that group of young men, right? Right. Except he did, but it wasn't immediately. That came, I believe, in his second term. And oh, by it? the way, I am. I think that was a great idea. Yeah. But what he did do relatively immediately, and this was in the early part of 2009, was he established a White House Council on Women and Girls. Hmm. And so there it was, something addressing the interests of women and girls. Again, um, yeah. sex exists, there's yeah. problems, but never was a similar uh, council developed for um, you know, boys and men. And, and the one for, for young males of color, I am all for that. But what I would like to see, and what I think would help males across the board, and the whole country, to be honest with you, is to um, have a White House counsel for, on boys and men. Yeah. I mean, just, just paralleling what he's done on, uh, on, on young women and girls. It's also interesting in um, a lot of the the news over the last few days in Baltimore, we keep hearing about institutional like racism where mm-hmm. maybe the courts are skewed and the and the police policing system and the judicial system are skewed against an african American uh, male even but you you also talk about just like there there probably is some form of institutional um, racism, there might also be an institutional sexism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me talk about that. that up. Yeah, let me say something about that. I will not. I think institutional racism is real. I think the situation is is very, very. Uh, you know, one of the biggest problems our country faces, no question. But on a somewhat more subtle level, the kind of institutional sexism that I'm talking about is that in schools, um, and there's been quite a bit of research on this. Um, I haven't done original research on it, but I'm certainly very familiar with the writings. Um, schools seem to be focused, that, again, at least for the last 20 years, um, on, on making sure they are, for want of a better term, girl-friendly. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are boy-friendly. Right. And so um, there's, a, there's a person named Michael Thompson um, who's, who's written a lot on this field, and he says, from much, and he's, he's had a PBS special and all kinds of things, he says that in schools, boys are kind of treated like defective girls. In other words, girls are kind of the gold standard for how a student should be. And boys, who are different, by the way, yeah. not every boy is different from every girl. Right. Um, men are taller than women, but there are some very tall women, and there are some short guys. Yeah. But overall, if you look at activity levels, for example, if you look at restlessness, if you look at need for recess, boys have it more than girls. Not that girls couldn't benefit from recess as well, but 
The issue is that a boy who's active, a boy who finds it hard to sit still, and with four grandsons, um, and uh, uh, two of them are in school, one is in preschool, one is still uh, you know, less than two years old, I see their activity level, and I know that in school it's, it's um, you know, not so easy for them. And there are ways that schools can try to adjust to the needs of boys, and that's what I meant. It's not, yeah. it's not, like, you know, it's not like outright sexism, perhaps, in the way we sometimes think of it, but it's, um, it's not a good situation. Well, especially eventually these, you know, these women are, are going to want boys <laughs> that are go- and they're, they're going to want these young men to grow up. And but if if all of a sudden they want educated um, men, but fewer and fewer men are getting educated than women, then the system is going to break down somewhere. Very an excellent point, Matt. It's one that I wish we would be more aware of. You're absolutely right. Um, there, there's, um, you know, some people disparage this field, but I think there's a lot to it. Some evolutionary psychology, and I know people are very involved yeah. in that. That talk about how we are different and how women, historically, and we're talking about over the millennia, right. have wanted men who are high achievers um, and who really do things and who are ambitious. And now a lot of women are high achievers and ambitious, and nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no. But they, on the whole, there's no reason to think, well, they're high-earning and ambitious. They're going to want some guy who's just going to sit at home. Now, stay-at-home dads, there are a lot of them, and they're great. They're fantastic. But it's still, even if you're going to be a stay-at-home dad, at some point in your life, just like women said, I don't want to just be a mom. I want to get out there and work. Uh, most men, at some point, are going to want to do that. Education is a key, and one of the biggest things that's happened and I don't think enough of us know about this, is that women far outnumber men in colleges. Mm-hmm. It's a ratio of about 56 or 57 percent of college undergraduates are women, and in the uh, African-American community, it's more like a two-to-one ratio. Wow. And, yeah. and, and then you're going to be trapped. You're going to be held back. Your incomes are going to be lower. Your, your information is going to be lower. You are absolutely right. Um, and, and by the way, just I want to make sure I get a chance to say this. Yeah. When I say about a White House counsel, I, I'm not just talking about it. There is an active group. The, the head guy involved is someone named Warren Farrell, who's, who's been writing about men's issues for, wow, you know, tw- close to 30 years. Mm. And he is leading a group, and I'm part of that, that's bipartisan. It's, it's liberal Democrats. It's conservative Republicans. It's across the board which is really working hard to try to get to try to get a white house council on boys and men established and um, and and to be honest with you the one of the key reasons i'm so for that is just to give awareness yeah. to the issues facing boys and young men so that people i'll tell people for example here's something the suicide rate in young among young males is much much higher than it is for young women it's mm-hmm. much higher a lot of people don't even know that. No. And everyone should know that. Yeah, that, that's that's why we need to be pushing it. And also, I mean, why why wouldn't you? And when we sit there and we think, um, if the boys, how many boys now don't have fathers in the home? How many fathers aren't in their home with their children? And what is the impact of that? I mean, you're not just even talking boys. You're also talking men. Men need exactly. different. They need different skills. They need different. Um, you know, a different approach. And it's also a question, your, your point's well taken, it's a question of role models. And there are many fatherless homes. Again, sadly, um, in the uh, African-American community, the uh, number of fatherless families is, is huge. And if you think about role models, 
Um, you know, I grew up with, a, with an intact family, and and, by the, and this is, by the way, not to take away from single mothers who can right. do a great oh, job yeah, raising doing everything they can. Oh, they can. But I grew up in an intact family, and I, my father wasn't perfect. <laughs> Just as, as a dad, I haven't been perfect. <laughs> right. I tried. But there was a model for me. There was a model of what it means to be a man. And I was there, you know, for my sons as well. And um, even fathers, even when there's divorce, it, the father can still stay really involved. But when a father simply is absent, um, you know, Warren has said this, and I agree, what is it, a boy grows up, and who, is his, who are going to be his male role models? It will be other boys, and many of them aren't. Right. You talk about a bad crowd. <laughs> it, this is who this young man might see. Yeah. He doesn't have any responsible male to look at, yeah. or it may, it may be hard to find one um, to try to go on, a, on the best track. Yeah, we shouldn't be raised by our best friends. We should be raised by adults that care about us and men and women and, and so that we can see the whole perspective. We're going to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Mark Sherman uh, from the blog Boys and Young Men. Attention must be paid. Uh, he really is doing everything he can to inform and educate us about the needs, the special needs that these boys and young men feel, as well as the men in the world. Uh, we got to lift everybody, folks, uh, if we want everybody to um, to be a part of the, ch- the change and the solution. We'll take a break. Come back more with Dr. Sherman after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're talking right now about boys and making sure that we're not letting them fall through the cracks. Um, and who better to teach that, teach us about that than Dr. Mark Sherman, who is the editor of The Boys and Young Men, Attention Must Be Paid. That's a blog. Uh, he's, a, he's a Psychology Today blogger. He's a, he's a really well-known writer back east. And for more than two decades, he's written a very popular bi-weekly humor column in the New Paltz Times, where he often writes about gender and relationships in a lighthearted and enlightened way. He's, he's written many books, and uh, right now he's also on a mission, folks, to, um, to help create a, uh, a, a, I guess, um, I don't know what it would be called, Mark. Is it a – to get into the White House and to create a Boys and Men Council – in the White House, which the White House already has uh, a council for women and, and girls, right? Right. So yeah. we're, you're just uh, you're just looking. Let's, and it's not like women don't need it. You're not trying to compete no. against it. You're saying no, they do need it, and that's wonderful. And our boys and our men need a similar council. Exactly. I just want to say one thing. I've written one, co-authored one book, but thank you. Oh, is, is that all you did? Oh, <laughs> no, but yeah. that's okay. But I've done quite a few articles and many, many blog posts. Yeah. No, I, I write a lot. You're and, a... Uh, this humor column I've been doing for 30 years. It's the other, my other side. But thank you, though. <laughs> you the, the White House Council, yes. Basically, I'm part of a group. It's a large number of people, includes a lot of women, incidentally, um, trying to, as I said, um, see if we can appeal to the president to establish a council to parallel the one 
that now exists for um, women and girls. And this would be a White House Council on Boys and Men. And, and, you know, some progress is being made. I'm happy to say, without giving names in here, because nothing's happened quite yet, is there is um, growing congressional support for this. I um, have been, you know, kind of leading uh, part of our group an uh, effort to um, try to encourage our congresspersons to um, push for this as well. And, in fact, there's a letter that I hope will be going out pretty soon from a Democratic and, and a Republican congressperson. In other mm. words, here's a bipartisan effort. We don't see too much of that in Washington. Going out to Congress across the board, just essentially uh, you know, trying to encourage them to sign on and to just ask the president to establish that. And yeah. I'm hopeful that something will come of that. You know, Matt, politics is a big deal everywhere, but in Washington it is a very big deal. Uh, yeah. And issues for women are very significant. They're very popular, and I agree with much of it. But to what I want to say is to be concerned about the issues of, of boys and men does not mean not to be concerned about those for right. girls and women. And as you said so eloquently, who are these young women going to wind up with um, if they're partners, um, if these boys and men aren't aren't anywhere you know near their level and yeah. you know it's not there are boys who are just not achieving the way the way they could and, yeah. and that's a problem and they might need different a different approach i mean i i was i was raised in a single home single parent home with my mom okay. and three sisters Okay. And, and yet I had men in my church congregation that made it a, a big point to come kind of model for me. And I, I had my dad in my life regularly. We would, we would hang out. But but I had other men around me that would take a role and would be there for me and 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 be there. And so it really is. It's, it's different. I was raised by four women that loved me to death and I still needed men – that that could mentor me, that could model for me, and it was it was a lot of these men that, that I didn't know I was going to go to college, and mm-hmm. um, and it was these men that would say, "No, Matt, you're going to college. Of course you are," and well, that that made a difference. Very very important, and thank you for mentioning that. And you said a couple of things which are, are again very significant. You talked about your dad was in your life, so, yeah. and by the way, the first. My my, I was married when quite young. Um, our marriage did not last very long. Uh, both my ex-wife and I got remarried. We each had more children, and my son did have a stepfather. But I was continued to be involved in his life. Yeah, and of course, still am. Now he's quite adult. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's I can't believe his age. I said, "Oh my God, I you are that so age. old." But, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you mentioned that, and that's important. The other thing you mentioned is really important too, and you use that word mentorship. You talked about it being in your church. That's great. It doesn't. I think it's really nice if it's a father and your father was involved, but it's got to be some men and responsible men. You know, guys, yeah. they look at what's around them and they say, hey, that's cool. And if it starts to become your peers, and let's face it, even really terrific 16 and 17-year-olds, even the good ones, may not be the best models for us. <laughs> no, right, exactly. And the ones who are in trouble are really bad models. So, so responsible males whether it's in your church or in your community or it's a dad who who maybe you don't see all the time but who is in your life and 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 certainly um you know is involved with you that is so crucial and one of the reasons i think it's so important to raise our boys well and to have the best boys and young men we can have is these will be the fathers of the future you bet no really, you bet it, these it. are going to be our grandchildren's 
fathers, and, and I'm proud. I'm not saying, wow, aren't I great? I'm lucky, but, but, but I tried hard. My sons, when I look at them, and each of them, one of them has one, two of them have one child each, and one of them has two. When I look at them with, with my grandsons, I am filled with pride. I mean, they are involved and responsible dads. And yeah. I, I'm not going to give myself a medal, but I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that while I wasn't perfect, yeah. <laughs> I've been working on it, but I think I was a pretty good role model for them. And, and I'm watching it transcend yeah. now to go to this next generation and it, it's, this is something, now granted, you know, I was lucky, our financial situation has been fine, I had a regular job, and that's great, but I still think it's possible. But what I think more than anything is we need the awareness that our boys and young men are not necessarily doing so great. That's, I, and, I, I agree. And, and, I, and, and, and they're not naturally going to just grow up healthy. No, no they it are has not. To be, they are not. It has to be mentored, it has to be guided, directed. Um, we've got about we've got about one minute left, sure, Mark. Tell sure. me, tell me what we should be doing as parents, just as regular folks. What should we be doing to help to make sure we're not leaving these boys behind? Well, I think one thing is just to encourage them and, and make sure they know they're loved, and that we, you know, boys who are being like regular boys <clears throat> should not be. You know, there's someone who has a, a website, uh, Jennifer Fink, called Building um, Building Boys. Not that I think is the name of it. She has four sons. She's kind of she's a single mom with her with the father very involved. Make sure they feel loved. Make sure they're not they're they're not restricted completely. And if you feel your schools are not doing a really great job with your with your son or your grandson, especially with your son, you know maybe step in and, and express it because you don't want your you know you don't want your child to feel what's wrong with me yeah. because the school may make him feel that way. Uh, you know, if some boys get into real trouble. That's a problem. But some boys get in trouble just because they're being like. Yeah. Boys. Yeah, they're just yeah, they're just doing what they do naturally. Exactly. And, you know, get in touch with your congressperson about <laughs> yeah. this this uh, need for a council, White House council. I love it. I really do. And and I think I think keep pushing for that. We do need it. And again, I don't I haven't told you, but I am I am a father of five boys. You are fantastic. And so and I was the only boy in my family. So it's and I have one daughter and five boys, but my wow. goal now is I've got to get five boys healthy or they're just going to ruin my name. So, wow, that's very good. You know what I mean? We hand it down, so I've got to focus a lot on these boys. So I appreciate your work, Mark. Well, I'm still waiting for a granddaughter to come along. I've got <laughs> three sons and four grandsons, no girl, but we're, we're hoping. Maybe it'll come. Days. It'll come. Yeah, you'll Thank eventually. You. It's all in the genes there. Good Thank stuff, you. Mark. Thank you, and keep up the good fight. Uh, again, everybody, if you want, go just go to Psychology Today. You can find out more about uh, Mark and his work, but other websites as well. Uh, one of them that's, I think, probably the, the easiest way to get him might be the Good Men Project. Goodmenproject.com and uh, the White House Council on Boys, whitehouseboysmen.org, whitehouseboysmen.org, pushing to uh, to keep our boys afloat. And in fact, uh, maybe even more than that, just make them men, healthy, happy men. We'll take a break, my friends. Come right back to BYU Sports Nation. See what's cooking, what's going to be coming up on their show later at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Daft Punk for you. 
Every time I hear this, I think of Jaron Jordan and Brian Logan shaking. Her. <laughs> I actually like this song, so I appreciate that. It's hot, isn't it? I, man, I could jam out to this all day, every day. I'm <laughs> like, I'm like my man, Jeremy. Ooh, did somebody stick Jerem with something? It sounded like he was stuck with something. Yeah, <laughs> that sounded painful, Jerem. I'm stuck in April. You're stuck. Come, you are stuck in April for a few more days. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah. so you guys are turning into the combo. You're the combo. Don't get Brian started. Hey, you know what? I was I was just gonna take a humble approach. I was she. I was I just gave my man a high five here because you know the 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 star of the show really is the host. The star of the show is Viore Sports. That's that's it's exactly right. See, okay, so Jerem is trying to take the humble approach. I'm not gonna (laughs) let him. Uh, the star of the of the show always is the host, the man in charge and directing. Yeah, uh, it's but isn't easy that for you, the Brian? Ben Bagley? Nope, 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 oh. nope. Not me. It's easy for the co-host. All oh, you gotta Miller? do is just show up. Yeah, and yeah. just, just and talk. look pretty. Yep, exactly. Hey, Makeup th- and everything. This is actually really important to what I wanted to talk to you guys about. Um, because there was a new report out of Oxford University that found that less than a quarter, actually only twenty one percent, of all of the seven hundred jobs that they categorized in the U.S. were deemed creative enough to likely evade an impending robot takeover. What the heck? (laughs) So if robots took over, which could very easily happen, right? Yes. Uh, If that happened, only 21% of the jobs out of the 700 they checked could make it. That's interesting. Guess which they are, by the way. Yeah, that's what I want to know. This is the deal, and and this is why this is so important. Um, Number one job. That couldn't be taken over. Translators and interpreters. Mm, yeah. Mm. So if you know if you know a language, it. it's important. Number two job: performing artists, which is mm. Jerem Jordan's second job. Yes. So he's covered there. I'm like Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. On the side, I play saxophone in an adjacent town. <laughs> yeah. You have to go. Yeah, you have to go to another town to not ruin your reputation. <laughs> number three. This is huge. Radio broadcasters. There you go. There he is. There we go. Uh, number four. Film and TV producers. Mm-hmm. You got it. And number yeah. five. R and D uh, research and developers uh, on natural sciences. Okay. Sorry, Brian. Yep, nope. Except for the radio. Nope. I, I'm good. Well, that's so good. Brian, You're good on that. I'm good on that. I got to spend all my energy and focus on that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Focus on that or get into the natural sciences. Yeah. Or, or, or performing artists. I could see you being a performing artist. I could see you I, being a performing artist. I could do that too. Yeah, what you is could the, dance. You, you could sing. I could dance. I could lip sing really, really good. <laughs> could you? My yeah. wife always gives me the best compliments for lip singing. She, she like, said I should go into a lip singing. There's a new show, uh, the Jimmy Fallon. Well, if, there oh, was a, yeah. well, if there was a job that you could just go lip sync, that'd be huge. Oh, that would be amazing. If I can go into like a lip singing like tournament slash contest, I would <laughs> we talked be about a millionaire. E, what was it, E-Games yesterday? Yeah, yeah. Could you be could lip do E-Games. There, there are Air Guitar World Championships, for goodness sake. Like, <laughs> oh, there's a genre there, right? But what, why I'm telling you this, Jerem, is because I know you like the TV side of your show, but it's the radio show that's going to keep you from getting well, eaten by the robots. I'm also a TV producer here, so I fit two of those. You fit three if you count performing artist. I don't really count that one. <laughs> okay. I, I quit solo, uh, you know, my solo career in church yeah, a while yeah. ago. Yeah. When you pulled your, yeah, you pulled your, you pulled the hammy. You yeah. can't, you pull, can't hit pull those, the larynx. You can't hit that. You can't hit the high notes without your nope. Your calves and your thighs and your exactly. hamstrings. Exactly. You're the only guy that sings from his legs. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's kind of gross. Hey, I've what? not been in an in sync um, music video though. No, however, like no, no. when Spender Linton. I know. How's, I heard, how's I he doing? That. Have you heard from him? Uh, Is he still vacationing? Yeah, he was tweeting this morning at like seven thirty, and I said, "Why are you awake?" And he said, "My three year old's a great alarm clock." Yeah, and I was that's like, all you need. "Okay, why don't you sleep in?" Is so. he recovering? Does he have his voice? Who cares? Um, he's just <laughs> home. Wow. He's home yeah. on vacation. No, good point. Good point. Yeah, it'll yeah. happen. Yeah, whatever. whatever. He'll come He'll back come probably. Back. Oh, he. Well, he's working today. He's not working on VOA Sports Nation, but he's calling the softball game. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's a busy dude. Okay. Yeah. But then he gets talk about most it. of the rest of the week off. So yeah. it's all good. What uh, What's on your show today, boys? Today we're going to talk about how BYU has expanded its resources to try and compete like a Power Five team. Okay. That includes staff, facilities. Uh, scheduling, um, also uh, meals for the students, yeah. Uh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. They're this acting as if they're going to they're going to perform as if they are to pick up their games, so that then it will happen. That's the hope. That, yeah, I like that's that. one way of looking. It's at a good it. mentality. And we'll discuss can BYU how much can BYU control a Power Five invite? Mm-hmm. Um, and Bronco Mendenhall has put a number on the. Uh, you said if he was forced to put a number on it, he put a number on the window of when he thinks BYU needs to get invited to a Power Five. We'll tell you what that is. Oh, wow. He, Plus. He's going to tell you the window. Yep. He'll tell you the number of years in that, that window. That yeah. he thinks they've got. Okay, cool. Men's volleyball head coach Chris McGowan will come in and recap the uh, 2015 season. And mm-hmm. then Jordan Rages will come in from the men's golf team. How, what, what, what's his name again? Jordan Rages. All right. Rages. Just, <laughs> I think we're going to shoot right. a vine when he comes in of someone banging on glass. Rages. <laughs> Rages. Yeah. He just won the uh, Ping Cougar Classic uh, with the men's golf Huge. team. Huge. You guys have so much fun. That's a good way of it, describing it. It is. Yep. I mean, like my- <laughs> even, even when it's April 28th. I have to tell you this, though. What? So I realized this morning I have a chronic issue with my uh, mom and grandma's birthday are back to back. Oh, oh see, I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it. I'm bringing it up but, you know, now okay. and on, when, on our show. Okay. Uh, I forgot that it was my mom's birthday. <sighs> I feel terrible. Oh. Today's my grandma's birthday. I had to go to Facebook to yeah. know this. Oh, horrible. Brother. But I thought about it. Yeah, I'm, I am. This isn't the first time I've done this either. With her one time, I, she called me yeah. the night of her birthday and said, hey, what's up? Did you remember it's my birthday? And I was like, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. I was just about, I felt so glad so you bad. called. I did it again. You know what? <laughs> Jerem, do you not know what your mother went through? When literally, she brought I you do to not, this earth? literally, I do not know. You don't remember? I, was, I, was, I couldn't see anything. Oh boy, that is that's she didn't tell a you slap any in the face. Of, of how many hours of labor she was She said it was so easy with me. I'm dead serious. She said after I had you I thought I could have 10 kids easy. And then <laughs> really? she had my sisters. Well, until you grew up and then you forgot her and then left her to die <laughs> on no. the side of a road. <laughs> she's doing great. With no birthday present. She's got a birthday. She's got a pool. It's like 80 degrees at her house today. She's, she's all good. good. So good. so that's why you, you better do that on the show and then just do a big shout out to mom and and, and grandma who's and, there watching so, with her today. And I would just – I'd throw yourself on the sword and just say I yes. blew it. I'm a loser. Yes. And if Spencer – if he had been here, he would have reminded me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, you, could always, you always blame it on the person Spencer. that's not here. That's which right. Is, always. Which no, I'll follow my sword. Absolutely. Oh, man. Brian, are you learning? I'm very disappointed. Brian, don't do this to your family. 
No, uh, my mom's birthday is uh, April 24th. So, Attaboy. Uh, oh, I was, four days ago. So it was, yeah, it was good. Yeah. I actually feel better about myself because I wasn't able to uh, get her a, a birthday present, but at least I was able to say happy birthday yeah. to her. At least you like, remembered. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. like, hey, you know, hey, mom, I'm just waiting, you know, on mm. a couple of shows for yeah. BYU to come through, then I'll be able to afford a birthday present. Yeah, there you go. But I mean, now what, I, I don't really care too much because at least I said happy birthday. <laughs> that's right. What, and what kind of guy <laughs> doesn't remember his mother on her birthday? That's it. That's I mean, you know, that's what I think is neat about you, Brian. I, I would say this about uh, Jeremy, though. He works extremely hard at his job, yeah. and I know that there are uh, a lot of things going around. That's that nice. Brain. There's no excuse. Uh, so that's the that's no, what I would. It's that's great. what I would say. It's that's great nice. to love your job more than your mother. Sure. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, uh, you know, I didn't really want to say it yeah, that no, way, no. Yeah, but I, I you understand. Know. Yeah. I can see right through. But luckily, Mother's Day's coming up, so you can make up for it. That's right. Opportunity. And it, by the way, is Brian, that a thing? Brian, remind Jerem to make up for it. I told him to put it on his calendar. See, I said, you know, smart people will put uh, their, their yeah, family yeah, and the exactly. most important people. Man, I'm on getting their destroyed calendar. here. I deserve it. Uh, I said, don't put your wife though, because you know that's yes. That's, I know my wife's birthday. That's a no, no. You don't want to put your wife on birthday on this the calendar. beat down. Brought to you by Hallmark Cards. <laughs> <laughs> Please look out for your mother. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, have a great show. And um, Jerem, I'm sorry that um, I'm sorry that you let your mom down. Yeah, I did. But you it's know, a real thing. Now you know. The more you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't, don't, don't make it. Don't make it worse, Jerem. Oh, oh, don't make okay. it worse. Uh, just, okay. just go. With it. Performing artist. Have a great show, gentlemen. Giga! <laughs> See ya. Oh, that is that's bad. You forget that you're dead. Because moms don't forget. Mm. Uh, he'll figure it out. He's a smart cat. Uh, here's the deal. As you know, we like to end the show with a little hero story. And one of my heroes are all of the good people of Baltimore that are doing what they can to stop the rest of the just rioters, the people that are, you know, messing with stuff. There's some really good people trying to 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 lead uh, Baltimore. So I have a shout out, heroes of the day, all of the citizens that are doing what they can there. Another uh, hero I'm going to call uh, Harold Ike, Ike of New York City. He is a passionate 17-year-old immigrant that applied for and has been accepted into 13 different schools, universities. Harold Ike is a family – his family immigrated to America 10 years ago from Nigeria. Desperate for their kids to succeed, Ike's parents encouraged each of their children to work as hard as they could and emphasize the importance of education. Harold Ike understood and spent a lot of time growing up uh, in his school, both academically and socially. He's a 4.0 student with quite a few extracurricular activities on his resume. He also applied for 13 colleges as a senior, feeling that mo- – Feeling he had this belief that most of them would reject him, but he was surprised when he received an acceptance letter from every single one of them. An even more amazing fact is that eight out of the 13 schools are Ivy League schools across the nation. E.K. is a grateful and was astounded at the opportunities he's been blessed with in America. And he says none of this would have ever happened to him in Nigeria. Through hard work and dedication, Harold now can choose absolutely whichever university that he decides to and has dreams of studying biochemistry and one day becoming a neurosurgeon, helping to find a cure for Alzheimer's, which his mom has been diagnosed with recently. Oh, Harold E.K. of New York City. Isn't that amazing? What a cool story. There it is, folks. 
That's the power of our youth. Uh, one boy doing everything he can, and then eventually, what if he finds the cure for cancer? What a stud. Uh, Harold E.K., you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Appreciate it. And again, uh, another shout-out to all of the people in Baltimore that are trying to teach their children to, uh, to if, if you don't like what's going on, then be healthy and find a healthy way to push against it. Uh, and our prayers are with all of you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, take care. <laughs>